This show is sponsored by the Bitbox O2 by Shift Crypto. If you're new to Bitcoin, you need to be taking self-custody of your coins. Full stop. Do not leave that shit on exchanges. That's not how you Bitcoin. The Bitbox O2 is a really easy way to get familiar with self-custody. The user interface is great. It's a very simple device to use. So again, if you're new to the game, this is a great first step at taking self-custody. Of course, if you've been in the game for a while and you're improving your self-custody solution, then it's a great option to have in the mix. Uh, for example, if you're using multi-signature signature solutions and you want to use a couple different hard, uh, hardware devices, it has a lot of great features that allows you to do that. Um, and it's just a great product. I've really been enjoying using it. So if you'd like to learn more about it uh, and potentially pick one up, Go to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapid fire for 5% off. Also, this show is sponsored by the amazing people over at Bull Bitcoin. If you're buying Bitcoin in Canada, doing so with Bull Bitcoin is absolutely the most private way to do so. It's a non custodial exchange, which means they don't hold on to Bitcoin, they don't hold on to your Bitcoin. You provide them with an address to go right to self custody after you make your purchase, which is not a common feature uh, in the Bitcoin exchange market, but definitely one that I think serves uh, the customer and the buyer the best. In this way, you don't risk leaving your coins on exchange. Remember, not your keys, not your coins for them to be lost or stolen or otherwise mistreated. Right. You get to take them into your self custody right away. And that's the best way to do it. This is the type of company that really thinks about what's best for its customers and tries to provide it in a very easy and convenient way for them. So if you'd like to learn more, go to bullbitcoin.com and check them out. Finally, this show is sponsored by the Bitcoin 2022 conference by Bitcoin Magazine. If you were at the 2021 conference, you know how incredible it was. And I probably don't have to sell you on how awesome 2022 is going to be. I had a phenomenal time. It was the first uh, chance I got to meet a lot of the people that I'd been interacting with on the show and on Twitter over the preceding 18 months or so, and uh, or maybe a bit longer, actually. And it was incredible. You know, lots of hugs, lots of hanging out, uh, lots of just connecting with other people that understand what's going on here and are part of this revolution and, and building relationships with those people. And then there was all sorts of great speakers, great satellite events a ton of dinners and parties and so many options to just hang out and talk and and uh, you know have a good time with uh, with other bitcoiners so it it looks like this uh, next year's event it's happening in april it's going to be enormous i think their capacity is 35,000 people and for the one in 2021 it was 13,000 people so Clearly, they're going bigger and they're expecting, uh, you know, a bigger crowd. It's right on Miami Beach this time at the Miami, Miami Beach Convention Center. It's going to be lit uh, and I'm definitely going to be there. So if you want to get tickets, there's a number, there's a bunch of different tiers. Um, but at checkout, whichever ticket you ultimately choose, put the code rapid fire, all one word, and you'll get 10 percent off. Let's do it. All right. Good. We're live. My first live stream. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I just like the realness of the live stream. You know, like if we were to record uh, not on a live stream, then I, I, I just there, there's somewhat of a different feeling. So that's why I do it this way. But in any case, we are live now. So Lubo, uh, first of all, thank you for making the time for this. Um, I came across your work recently 
I shared it out to the community that I'm a part of. Lots of people had come across it before. Lots of people were extremely impressed and moved uh, by it. And, you know, it obviously resonated with them. Uh, so really big fan, really appreciate you making the time. And perhaps for people that aren't familiar with you or the work, we can just start with you introducing yourself and then we'll take this wherever we want to take it. Mm -hmm, for sure. Well, John, thanks for sharing it with your community. I've gotten some good feedback from, from the people you know, with, within that sphere. Um, so that's, that's great. And the more people I can see it, the better, because I think it sort of emblemizes something in a very short format that uh, is coherent and perhaps necessary right now to put the pieces of all the fragments together in something understandable, if I may say so as the creator. But uh, regarding myself, I'm, you know, professionally, I, I work in animation, uh, been mostly working for bigger companies, working on, on, on bigger projects, doing service work. And I kind of took the step, risk, and dedication to, to make in shadow and make some other meaningful pieces, which I am working on right now. Um, I, and I'm navigating the space of sustaining myself and walking that tightrope of still being dependent on outside sources. Uh, and also trying to speak as truthfully as I can and effectively as I can for these very urgent and beautiful times that we find ourselves in uh, to fulfill my role as a communicator, as an artist. Uh, beyond that, I'm just, you know, absolutely on the path of, of, of unfolding, of truth, of finding being in the real and expressing the real with, with myself, with, with all my actions, thoughts, words, emotions, and uh, recalibrating this, this whole simulation, this whole environment into a higher order. And I think many of us are tuning into and turn, coming online to, to the reality of that game. Um, so I think that's, that's probably as succinct as I can get. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's definitely a lot there, but you know, one of the, I guess the natural place to start is, as you say, you're on this, this journey and many of us who are conscious of who we are and the world that we exist in and the potential that the relationship between the two uh, the potential that exists in relationship between the two of those things is on some variation of a journey like that and I'm I'm curious like the, there seems to be oftentimes that moment where you decide you're going to be more you're going to lean into that more you're going to express that aspect of the journey more and for you, perhaps it culminated in the making of this film. And I'm, I'm wondering what was it that pushed you over the edge as it were to actually make this film, to express those things that were occurring inside of you and these ideas and ideologies and stuff that, that you were having. Mm -hmm. So there was a critical mass within me of the information I was consuming and the convictions that were forming themselves. And also a, a general sense of indignation uh, of, of, a, of a kind of injustice and a willful ignorance that I was seeing within the humans around me. And so that, uh, that indignation turned into a, some sort of like righteous anger almost that, that, fueled, uh, that fueled the passion necessary to, to carry the project through and, and to communicate all these things. So, um, and also seeing a, a type of urgency. My, my assumption when I made it, when I started it uh, around, when I committed to making it was 2015, 20, 
2014, I think, or 2015, either way, at the end of 2014, um, I committed to it because I, I've, my assumption, I, I don't, you know, I don't have really any special psychic knowledge of anything, but my assumption based on the trajectory of, of the of world events uh, and just like world mythology and traditional kind of like narratives that, that I was entertaining, my assumption was that we were coming to a head to some sort of event, potentially of a singularity, but not of, of the transhumanist singularity, more of a singularity of, of consciousness. Uh, some sort of like a series of events that would really start crumbling down the illusions around us that would start uh, reframing reality and really leaving us in, in a place where we couldn't hold on to the mental frameworks that limited us and kept um, maintained the consensus reality in place. So seeing that, part of why I made in shadow was to create a, a very succinct mental imaginistic map that would make sense. It's nothing new. It's just that it's done visually in, in a game of 13 minutes. It's something that many of us have known for a long time that comparative mythologists have been explaining and, and, and entertaining over the last century, this hero's journey of the psyche, which at one point reaches such a calcified state that it needs to like, the real within it needs to break through and upgrade to a more harmonious level. And so, um, you know, to do that consciousness is also just based on the, the dynamics that I understand of our cre creative sort of, of our realm is uh, in order for that to happen, we need the other element, the, 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 the destructive, the calcifying, the limiting element to really identify what is consciousness, what is real, what is true. Um, those two elements need to work together and through that tension, create a higher resolution. And so we're seeing that right now. And again, back to In Shadow, sorry, I'm a little scattered in this, but back to In Shadow, I wanted to present the necessity of really looking at the uncomfortable aspects of our reality first, because if we don't address those, if we don't recognize them within the individual and the collective and how they manifest, then we are victims to those forces by being blind to them, right? So whatever is in the dark that wields an influence on us, unless we shine a light, we see it, we understand it, and we deal with it, uh, it's always going to influence us somehow. So that's the first uncomfortable step. And through there, by, the, by looking at it, by understanding it, by dealing with it, we grow exponentially and we develop exponentially. So as human beings on the earth plane, just through our uh, capabilities, our competence, our various skill sets, but also in a conscious and emotional state so that our bandwidth and our capacity to withstand discomfort and to be resilient in the face of uh, catastrophe and, and, and pressures and, and all the stuff that, that is happening now, for instance, uh, we can grow that capacity and, and withstand and understand the greater aspect of the whole. And the more of us that do that, the more of us that integrate and process the darker aspects through understanding and re-perceiving them, reframing them and reimagining, uh, that's how we're contributing to this general new sphere, right? We, of course, have to do, you know, all of the ground level things that we're figuring out, you know, finances, independence, food, uh, sustenance, survival, relationships, community. Uh, but those all, in my opinion, come from that uh, right relationship with self and with the outer projection. And when that aligns, everything else aligns and it comes from a pillar of truth. 
and it aligns to a higher transcendent source. So if we don't do that, we are much easier to manipulate and steer in different directions, right? Uh, if we haven't worked out those lower aspects. So anyway, I'll stop there. I can keep talking. <laughs> but, no, I, I, I could listen to you talk for, for hours. It, it's, it's beautifully put. And I love how you know, careful you are with your words. Um, what is it in your own personal journey that led to, like in advance of, of the inspiration to express these ideas, that led to yourself having them, you know, having a reframed perspective so that you could develop the wisdom that you just articulated. What was it, what was your journey to and through that process like? Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I, I think there was a natural inclination to, to seek some of these, these realities or the reality. Um, and then the actual manifestations of that were uh, psychedelics, as so many of us are initiated through these plant medicines, which really reframed many things for me and opened me up to um, a greater reality, more expanded, one that was beyond my personal biographical limitations. And then beyond that, um, I was can I just Can I just ask you one question about that? You know, you're right, and such was the case for me as well, I, I, I had always grown up, you know, extremely curious and in hindsight, you know, my, I guess the underlying motivation for me was truth. You know, my, I, now I articulate it by saying like, I've, I try my best to see with clarity, you know, I'm not going to make any great claims of what is, but I'm just trying to remove the, the filter of illusion, let's say, and try to see with clarity, whatever that means in whatever domain it's to be applied. And so that was kind of already running in the background. And then I encountered um, the intentional use of psychedelics. And I always stress that point because obviously there's a recreational use and it's quite popularized. And, and you know, maybe, I, maybe there's a role for it. And I, you know, I don't want to... Um, you know, diminish or criticize people that find value in that use. But when I talk about it, I'm talking about it, you know, very, very intentionally use, you know, uh, the, the quote unquote heroic dose done infrequently, done in the right setting, done with the right intention, et cetera, et cetera. And, and those experiences, as you say, dramatically opened up, uh, expanded my sense of, of what is and what can be and what's possible. And of course, also deconditioned and defragged a lot of the, the cultural conditioning that you can receive through the, the course of life and growing up in a particular culture with certain ideas and ideologies and institutions and, and things of that nature. Um, for me, it, it was uh, the initial experience was, you know, high dose psilocybin. And then I spent my time in the Peruvian Amazon to explore the, the ayahuasca shamanism component of, of those pursuits. And then you know, I've kind of resettled back on psilocybin being the most reliable and the most uh, the most suitable method of interacting with that space, though I do it, you know, very infrequently because uh, there's a lot of integration to do after the fact, you know, in, in what you encounter in those spaces. So, you know, you don't have to answer if it's something you'd like to keep private, but I, I'm wondering the specifics of, of your encounter with, with that realm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, in general, I would say some of the most potent, and by the way, I, I, like, I completely align to everything you said with the responsible use, the infrequent use of, of these substances. Uh, I really like your term defrag, by the way, I'm gonna steal that. Defragging <laughs> consciousness, it's cool. Um, so yeah, a lot to integrate. And I think there is a tendency to perhaps, when I was younger, to seek answers a bit too much in these outside substances that certainly integrate very well with us and face well, but um, ultimately are not it. We are independent, sovereign humans, and these are tools, in my opinion. So yeah, tread carefully and responsibly. Um, my most useful, fruitful, and profound uh, teachings and lessons within the last five years from specifically psilocybin, um, with very infrequent use has been um, understanding and knowing embodiment. And that, what that means, what I mean by embodiment is the real deep felt sense of being present within one's own self in, in, in the moment, within the senses, as they are showing up here now in the real, right? And why I differentiate that from everything else is because the real is what is immediately present, unfiltered by the frames and conceptualizations that we generally use, and especially in the West, we love using, and especially as men, perhaps, <laughs> we, we love using as well. Um, and so the felt sense of here, the sensory experience that's present right now requires us to be uh, in tune and sensitized to our bodily awareness so that all senses are available within the body. And because the body tends to be this feedback loop of the unconscious, which is largely numb in many of us in different areas, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure most people would say, I don't feel my full body. I don't have full access to it. In fact, I don't even know what feeling my body is. That is the experience of many, many of us. And so a lot of the felt centers, especially on the front of the, the chest, going down to the abdomen, to the solar plexus, all the way to the genitals, that full area is contains a lot of traumatic and other aspects of our, the disowning of our own presence, of our own being, of our own truth. So the embodiment process that I was shown and that I've been kind of like tutored in every time I showed up again with the plant medicine was to, to go into those areas and expand and sort of bring the light uh, through, through sensing into these aspects and awakening them and feeling all the turmoil and feeling all the sizzling and frying of, of, of whatever is there, of, of the frozen aspects of me, uh, of myself. And perhaps I dare say some of the collective things that are stuck within. I'm still working through that. But the more I've been able to tune into it, the more grounded I felt, the more of this like warrior resilient energy I've been able to nourish so that in my waking life, I can really show up and not be swept up by the, you know, by the waves of, 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 of um, just the collective unconscious or of like hysteria and other things. I'm not saying I, I don't get affected. I'm just saying that there's much more of a, a grounded pillar that I can resort to. And within this pillar, I am feeling the, what opens up there. Maybe this sounds too mystical, but there it's the portal to the, to the sacred and to the, to the eternal really. Um, and, and once that portal is open, that fountain of truth and, and great resource of life force 
we start tapping into something that is um, extremely powerful. And I think, yeah, sorry, I, I keep going back into greater greater aspects of this, but yeah, so um, I'll just nail it down to embodiment and really being here, showing up um, as I am has, has been probably the most profound and useful lesson. Mm. First of all, you don't need to apologize for any sort of terminology or, or exploration here because, you know, I, I think we've shared probably a lot of similar experiences, so I feel like I understand very well what you're trying to refer to, you know, because what we're dealing in here are ineffable experiences ultimately, and words are, you know, totally incapable of addressing them, though we have no other tools, so we use them, you know, and, and so I, under, I understand uh, much of what you're saying. And, you know, it's interesting. You, you said right at the beginning of that explanation, you know, like <clears throat> at the beginning of these processes of exploration and, you know, psychedelics is one domain where that happens. Travel and experiencing other cultures is another. Refining your intellect is another. Exploring your body through different practices is another. Like there, there's so many different ways to explore here. But as you say, you know, when you first approached the psychedelics, you were you were seeking answers. And I assume that was motivated by your looking out and observing the world and saying something doesn't seem right, or perhaps a lot of things don't seem right. You know, something seems off, even if you can't nail down or articulate exactly what that was. And that was definitely the case for me. You know, something I just, you know, it, it was obvious, right? But I couldn't, I didn't know exactly what. And as a result of that, I too was seeking answers, you know, so you get into that space, right? This expansive, whatever we want to call it, you know, connection to a divine wisdom of some kind, the spirit world, your deep unconscious, whatever that place is, it seems like a place that holds some kind of answer, some kind of wisdom. And so your first inclination is, tell me, you know, it's like, give me the answer, you know, I'm, and, and you end up asking, you know, so many questions. And I guess I found uh, not that in those spaces, your perspective is so shifted. There's always a benefit in a shifted perspective because you're able to come out of the one that you've created the grooves in that you're normally in and you can see things from another angle and there's always some benefit to that. But direct overt answers, there was often not. And you know, as I've spent the last 15 plus years using these practices to for lack of a better term, refine myself in the last couple of years, because I've, I've always been trying to step back from the experience, not I'm, I'm trying not to seed it, I'm trying to let it unfold as as in front of me without my influence, even though that's impossible, but with as little influence as possible. And in the last couple of years, I've managed to get to a place. And the reason why I'm explaining this is because you mentioned it in that the it seems to me that the the pinnacle or the apex that's available in that experience. And again, this, this will sound corny to some, but you know, who cares? Uh, is complete union with the fullness of the unfolding present moment. And that, that might sound either really mundane to some or really cliche to others. But when I say it, like I get goosebumps because I, I remember being in that place and um, yeah, the connection and the wisdom that's available and the peace that is embodied, you know, and again, words fail, but it's, um, 
that seems to me like like the pinnacle. And obviously, there's throughout history, mystics and different, uh, you know, different cults, different religions, different sacred practices have talked about this, right, and have have developed different means of getting there. Uh, but you get such a more such a deeper understanding of what that actually means as you're able to get there, but it's by no means delivered automatically. I mean, like I said, for me, it's been 15 years of, of, you know, once or twice per year having these experiences to try to get there. And it's only in the, you know, the last two or three years that we're not trying to get there. I didn't know where I was trying to get, but it's only two or the last two or three years that I've wound up there as a result of pursuing something, you know? And so yeah. yeah, I don't have a question on the back of that, but that, you know, I... I no, no, I hear you. Yeah, it's it does does require work. And I, I definitely relate to going into the experience with like questions and and maybe things in the way that don't quite pan out for me. And when I go with an openness, with truth, with being, being taught, um, it, it sort of like works out in a better way. And I get exactly what I need. I, I used to, when I was younger in my 20s, I used to naively go into an experience, you know, wanting the ultimate apex, like the final solution answer thing. To <laughs> and I'd always get my ass kicked because it was, it's just such an immature way to approach it based on like my own, you know, limited level of development. Um, so yeah, I found that I've always gotten exactly what I, what I need not what I want. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. And I, I remember thinking back in those early days, because um, again, you, you think you, you want the answer delivered to you on a platter, right? You want God to speak directly to you what the truth is. And even then, even though I wasn't, you know, still had a lot to, to learn about navigating that space, I knew that like, how absurd is it to think that God is going to use a word, like, is going to just speak it to you, right? Rather than transform you into it, you know, that the yeah. latter seems like a far more real education, I guess. Totally. And you know, actually, to be even more truthful about what I said, uh, was it's not so much that I was looking for an answer. It's more like it's coming in and being like, fix me, make me feel good, like right. take away all these pains. So like you're saying, God, you know, the divine doesn't just like, yeah, you have to go through all these stages to understand fully, to be a participant within this unfolding. Um, yeah, so I think a lot of it, especially at the beginning of a, of a spiritual journey, I think a lot of us just want to feel better and don't necessarily have the real genuine desire to actually to serve and to, to, to exhibit some of these higher principles of like a spiritual or a deeply unfolded life uh but it's more like take me away from my pains and toils and, and burdens and that's yeah. fair it's very understandable you know I, I obviously still have those aspects within me that i'd love for that to be just <laughs> taken, taken away but that would mean nothing because if a circumstance that would create those kind of things and it comes up again i won't know how to deal with it because i never unfolded it and I never saw its gradient of like data that I mined and understood. And, you know, consciousness only expands by going into everything and unfolding it. So, yeah, I, I agree. And it, it makes me think of periods in my life that have been extremely challenging and, 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 and in some cases remain challenging. Um, 
but it did make me think at the time, like, as you just said, the, there's the spectrum of, the spectrum of consciousness that you can experience. It, is that ultimately a good thing, right? So even if part of that spectrum is absolute, you know, maximal suffering or extreme suffering in whatever form it may take, but is that not ultimately beneficial because you've, you now have a, you know, you're operating on a broader spectrum of consciousness, which means you're more able to integrate aspects of yourself, all, you know, all the different, the wisdom contained in an expanded experience of consciousness. You know what I'm trying to say? So it's, it's almost like, you know, yeah, it's almost like these, the more hardship you experience, uh, the better it is in a, in a sort of perverse way, you know, yeah. I guess to the evolution of your own consciousness. Totally. And, and, you know, the hypothesis here is that source God unfolds into, um, into, into an exponentially greater complexity of experiences. Right. So it's like this energy is like peering out into all the minutia of things and how they can like, how they, they evolve. And so we are part of that reaching out. We're almost like the fingers of this source energy. And we're touching into all these like variables. And then the source learns how it can unfold and all the possibilities that it can go through. And then like sort of like brings them back into this eternal breath, right? So that's you know one hypothesis based on like my level of intelligence and understanding. But I just wanted to say something that occurred to me when you were speaking about feeling into everything and and kind of mapping out the layers of consciousness. I agree. And I just wanted to qualify that with something in case some of whoever, you know, people that are listening may, may get some sort of like maybe value from this and that um, just suffering itself and going into loops of, 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 you know, yeah, just suffering is, is can, can trap us within these loops of consciousness. And there's many of us that are trapped or parts of us, fragments of us that are trapped in that. So those remain within their programs and scripts and they run in there. And certainly consciousness is experiencing that. But in order to free them and bring them back into the wholeness of the self, we need to begin feeling and looking at them. And then with equanimity, with understanding, seeing the full spectrum as much as we can at any time and that capacity expands. But seeing them from the point of view of the, you know, a lot of people say the observer, that doesn't that word doesn't quite satisfy me but i think it's more from like the level of the higher self the level of like someone who's like in tune with the with the power of the present and knows that it is kind of like indestructible let's say and from there with kindness with with love if we can muster that up but at least with understanding to see those aspects of us that are in suffering and that's when that starts decalcifying and integrating back into the wholeness um, so, which brings it, brings us in a way to, again, the current moment in which we're seeing a lot of this stuff coming up to the surface, right? So if we're constantly culturally, so if we're constantly reacting to it, uh, we are staying within this, the loop of its own programming. But if we step away from it and we ground ourselves into truth, into the, the, I, keep, I can't find the, quite words, the, the right words to say for this, but let's say the impermanent. Uh, then from that point of view, we can see all this phenomena around us, all this upheaval for what it is, 
And through that seeing, we are actually helping it to elevate itself. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And, and to the point of, of kind of how suffering expands your experience of consciousness, as you say, I mean, whatever consciousness is, whatever it represents and however we're used as a vehicle for it with some influence on it as well. I mean, perhaps it's just a process of, as you say, like getting it further into the reaches of all that is and can be experienced such that it can be transformed by the tool that is consciousness, you know, and, and that's maybe that's the spiritual journey. You know, like I often think in terms of what's happening in culture and we have these high minded, these ineffable experiences, right? And then we come down into our meat vehicles, right? And, and as you say, the real world then impresses upon you all the culture, all the conditioning, all the physiological requirements, et cetera. And I've often felt that, you know, is kind of my impression of the spiritual master, quote unquote, is someone who can um, bring to bear the correct and most genuine aspect of themselves for the situation and the circumstance that they find themselves in. Mm -hmm. So, and, and do it, as I said, genuinely, not as, not as a mask, you know, to use some of your terminology from, from the movie. And, and a very simple example would be, you know, can you be, you know, the monk up in the mountain doing that aspect of yourself, bringing down that aspect of your potential? And can you be the warrior on the battlefield who is indomitable and vicious against their enemy? And, and again, have that be genuine, like completely embody that aspect of yourself because, you know, we contain multitudes, right? We contain all of those things and <clears throat> is not the best way to confront reality, bringing to bear the genuine component of yourself that best responds to the reality that you're confronting. Now, you know, and determining what aspect that is in every given moment is a challenge, right? Like maybe the best way to confront the battlefield is some other way other than the monstrous, you know, uh, warrior, but maybe it's not, you know? So uh, I feel like, you know, the master is the one who can almost without friction move between each one of those, those things when required in the, uh, in the most genuine uh, way possible. Yeah, for sure. I really like that you said that. Actually, I, I, I kind of nerd out over thinking and trying to, to embody that as much as possible, being a, a versatile vessel for different types of action, you know, whether it's like strategizing in one point, tending to the um, volatile emotions of a partner, perhaps in another, in a sensitive and constructive way, then being, you know, uh, being in the field. Uh, boots on the ground if necessary in a very intelligent way, not getting sniped, but, you know, duck and cover, move, yeah. <laughs> take position. And, you know, that's, those, those are allegories for just kind of like the cultural battle that's, that's going on right now. If we want to frame it as a battle, that's one way to do it. Yeah, um, yeah I agree. Putting on those hats is like, it's, to me, it's, it's sort of like I romanticize that because it, it really, I think my, the masculine aspect of me gets energized by this heroic kind of like a heroic tendency of using all these different skills for a greater good and being competent and being versatile. I think that's, yeah, 
Yeah, I think it's really cool. Yeah, because I think in these domains, often the ego gets a bad rap, right? You know, like, because you, maybe you experience an ego death and in, in certain practices, psychedelics being one of them, and you kind of realize that you are not all the things you identify with, right? There's something more eternal or more fundamental about you. And you, and a lot of, I've noticed that a lot of people kind of tend to come from that experience and negate or criticize, uh, you know, the ego. But I see the ego as just like your individuated self rather than your eternally, you know, your, your connected self. And it's, it's there for a reason. It's obviously very useful, right? So if, if in a given moment, I think the best version of me to show up is like that, like, competitive i'm going to rip your face off in the in these you know sprints or in this workout or whatever domain it might be like that that may very well be the best me to show up to get the best benefit from in that in that moment right so i part of the trick uh and uh, you know you, your your film is actually so this is a theme that's so relevant to your film it's like the ego's not bad how do you best use it to your advantage what's the best way to engage it and i think the, the theme of these masks in, in your film is that people have uh, so little certainty about how to engage the ego and of course what lies behind it as well, that they purchase these other masks that are, that are promoted to them that are put in front of them, right? Like you don't have to figure it out for yourself, buy this mask, you'll be this person and that's what the world will see of you. And that gives you a certain degree of comfort, that gives you a certain diminishment of anxiety, that gives you a certain amount of mobility and, and confidence in, in moving through this matrix that is culture, you know? And, um, but ultimately it's empty because somebody else constructed the mask for them, right? And, and yeah. there's something deeply, um, what's the word? I don't know, deeply unhealthy about that, or that's the wrong word, but I, I think you'll know where I'm going with that. No, no, you're right. You're right. I, I really like how you phrased that, John. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I definitely agree about the ego. And, you know, there's various like clinical terminologies and different kind of like ways we can, like Jung will frame the ego in one way and Eastern traditions in another. But yeah, that sense of self that is sovereign, that type of ego completely, it's a necessary vehicle for us to travel in, in this reality. And, and once we get into right relationship with that, we can show up within our unique uh, sort of like aspects of who we are, jovial, warrior-like, et cetera. As long as we're conscious of the actions we're taking and, and sort of the way we're showing up, we can then go into warrior beast mode, or we can go into gentle loving mode, or we can go into strategic leadership mode of like blessing the realm and growing, make helping everything grow. Um, you know, if we need to be exuberant or, or just larger than life in certain situations to rally the troops we can do that without going to narcissism we, we can see its purpose but we can only do those things and we can we can really be in the healthy ego only when we've dealt with the lower self and the shadow and that means all of the inadequacies and the pains and the and and the wounds from early childhood in addition to cultural artifacts that we've accepted and when we deal with those then we have a sense of a center and once we have that center, we can then mitigate and really calibrate our ego and the way we show up in the world so that it doesn't go into an aberrant journey of like um, collecting, you know, adulations and, and collecting like applause and all that other stuff. So the degree to which we are blind to our core self, which needs nothing, 
requires nothing other than, than to just be. The degree that we're not aligned to that is the degree to which we need masks, like we actually do need them. So because otherwise we are uh, super vulnerable and we are, there's nothing really that exists, unfortunately, for some people who have done no introspection beneath the mask. So they're just series of masks. So, you know, if that's all they identify with, which is these strategic behaviors that they've put up to, to mitigate the pain in the world and to deal with the world and show up in it. And then if that is rewarded by society and, and, and it keeps being, you know, um, compounded into greater and greater narcissistic masks and behaviors, then it's, it's a terrible kind of damnation almost to be in that because there's so, <clears throat> excuse me, there's so much work to, to start disidentifying from it, to, to let go of all these successful strategies and to start feeling the pain. There's, there's really no incentive in a lot of people to do that um, because why would one look at all the pain and, and the feelings of insufficiencies and insecurity um, when, when they have this huge structure of success you know, built for themselves. Now, inherently that structure of success, that mask uh, doesn't lead to any satisfaction because it's a series of programs, right? There's no real choice making. There's just sort of like reacting and, and yielding into various strategies. It's a program. So if this happens, then I react in this way because I know I'm successful with it. You know, so it's inputs and outputs. And this is where this robotic synthetic um, behavior is, is kind of proliferating a lot of unconscious people and of course we have the opposite happening as well but so i have a lot of sympathy for for the mask wearing um it's unfortunate that our culture really discourages introspection and has no real frameworks or paths toward clarity and and, and really nurturing and growing that real self within so that our wonderful uniqueness and can 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 shine so that like you know like being an artist or an entertainer or a businessman or whatever it is, an entrepreneur can come from that authentic self and we can really express authenticity. You know, we can still have all these different flavors and, and um, unique aspects, but it comes from truthfulness. And I think that's where, yeah, I think I, I kind of lost, lost that thread, but. Sure, well, I'll pick it up here. Yeah. You know, we're talking about the ego and one of the ways in which I think it can be beneficial is uh, by its ability to kind of muster courage, you know, because if, if as you're saying, like, if you're going to deal with those things, if you're going to remove the, the, uh, the prop that is the, the mask, I mean, you can you need courage to confront those things, at least initially, you know, one of the, one of the, the interesting experiences that um, on one of my first, you know, psychedelic experiences ever was, <clears throat> Didn't know what I was getting into. I think it was the first time I was having, you know, a good time with friends and messed up the dose and wound up in territory that I hadn't intended to be in. And I was confronted with what I later kind of interpreted as the manifestation of these aspects of shadow or unconscious, et cetera. And they manifested in the aggressive faces, you know, that coming at you at a million miles an hour nonstop, right? And extremely unsettling, extremely difficult. And, you know, my, my initial response was kind of meet it with, try to meet it with the same amount of aggression, you know? So I, you know, in, in my mind, that was a moment where I like, you know, put on my 300 outfit and I was just like, come on, you know? Uh, but it, it was so exhausting and it didn't help the situation. 
that um, I had to find another strategy. And I'm kind of like, you know, um, uh, countering my initial presumption here, but to, just to finish this thread, what I ultimately realized is that the way, the way that became effective after perhaps multiple attempts at disarming what was coming at me was I landed on the utility of expressing to that, that darkness, the aggression that was coming at me. A loving curiosity is kind of how I articulated it. And the loving part was the disarming part. It was the like, whatever you're, you know, yes, you're coming at me aggressively, this scariness. Well, what happens if I just project the exact opposite back at you? Mm-hmm. And that does, that does have a disarming effect, or it did rather. Um, and the curiosity was kind of, you know, the, the mental dialogue that happened in my mind was like, okay, I get it. You're scary as shit, but what are you? Why are you here? Like, I, I don't, I'm not afraid anymore. Tell me what you're, what you're about. And, and that re, that disarmed it like that. Once those two things came together, then it became a, a, a journey of actually understanding what lied behind what was occurring. Um, but the reason why I bring it up is because courage was the initial aspect of that. Right? You, you, you have to stand in front of the dragon first to figure out what is required of you to learn to access the treasure it holds, metaphorically speaking, right? To, to learn what it is that dragon is manifesting or protecting or, or, or attempting to keep you from. Totally. Yeah, beautiful, man. That's, that's really cool to hear. I completely agree. Courage is like one of the main ingredients. And then courage in itself is this growing thing of you know, that resilience creating the space within the moment so that we can withstand all the, the that force that's coming from the, the horror or the terror that, that the dragon holds. Mm-hmm. And that, that grows the more that we show up, the more that we, we commit to courage. I completely agree with that. Yeah, it's you interesting. Know, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, no, I was just gonna, I was gonna say that your film brought back a lot of memories of that very experience because there's so much imagery of, first of all, these ultimately terrifying masks. They're meant to be like this artificial smile, like this everything is okay, but they're ultimately so perverse and te- you know, they're, they're terrifying. And then there's other uh, you know, somber or dark or, or, or scary facial uh, images in, that, in the film as well. And they're often coming at you in a very aggressive way, right? Either fast or ominous or whatever. And it brought me back to that very experience because that's, you know, there's definitely similarities between what was, what I was experiencing and seeing in my own mind and and what this video, what what you conveyed in in this video. And I I would think there's no, that's not by accident, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an an archetypal step within our journeys that, that has to be gone through. So that's cool that it resonated in that way. Do you, did you find, did you find a certain expansion or a recalibration in your approach with your courage uh, after this experience? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, what happened, just to finish that, that story, um, when I approached it that way and the switch kind of uh, flipped, I had this, you know, Again, this will sound very silly to people who, who aren't familiar with these experiences, but I had the feeling that my head had kind of cracked open like a coconut. And there was a, you know, a very palpable sensation of something in there connecting to something up there. Uh, and it was literally stunning. And I don't know how long I, I 
sat with it 10, 15 minutes, whatever. And then I collected myself and went inside. And it, it was actually that very experience that set me on the path. I think the next day I got on Amazon, I ordered every single book they had about psychedelic shamanism, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that, you know, set me on a, a 15 year plus journey of trying to understand these things more. Um, but yeah, my, my under, determining your relationship to courage is a never ending process, if for no other reason, but the environment in which you have to apply it is always changing, right? The whole, like you never step into the same river twice, right? Cause you're a different man and the river is different or however that, that quote goes. And so, and, and the current times are, I would say that's a theme that's I'm grappling with even more in the current times, because in, in my opinion, I don't know how to, to characterize the totality of our times, because as you alluded to earlier, like I do think there is a, there's an awakening of some kind happening. There's a freeing process happening. Simultaneous to that, there's also the opposite happening, right? And, and there's a lot of things that concern me that I believe are dangerous and that are not being considered properly in our, in our time. And it's because of my anxiety about the latter that is forcing me to think more about what it is to be courageous in these times and what actions come from that courage and how much courage do you need and how to apply it and like all of these questions because you know and and i think many of us are going to be transformed greatly over the next five ten years whatever you want to call it and most likely through hardship at, at least in addition to whatever else might be transforming us. And so much so that the, the imagery that I've been working with lately, and this is definitely influenced by the fact that I've been brushing up on my uh, Mircea Eliade and his, his writing on alchemy and stuff is the idea of the forge is, has, is what's running through my mind a lot lately, right? The, the forge is hot fire, it's pressure, it's hammering, it's cold water, it's just uncomfortable in every conceivable way. Yeah. But the result, let's say if you're making a, a, using the forge to make a sword, for example, or to refine a metal of some kind, you know, this is the alchemical idea, that what results from that extreme pressure, that extreme heat, that extreme you know, beating and all the other forces at play is something more pure, more beautiful, more capable of, of uh, being useful in the world for lack of a better term. Um, so my, you know, my ideas about courage are kind of centering around this imagery lately, because to be honest, I feel really as much, you know, the, as much as works work I've done and tried to uh, establish my life in a manner that's adaptive to the changes that are occurring, it still all makes me very, very, very uncomfortable. And mm -hmm. I need to find ways to assuage the anxiety that comes with that because we don't want to be consumed by it, right? We want to rise to meet the challenge and overcome it in, in some way. And even determining how to, what overcoming it means is, is a part of this process and a part of the challenge, right? So it's a, it's a great challenge that we are confronted with. And yes, I think courage is a very important, is a very important component of that. But but yeah. determined but defining courage and and acting it out in the proper manner is is certainly mm -hmm. not easy. 
amazing, very well said. Well, one thing I just want to tag a few things is absolutely uh, I, I, part of me also like wanted to like almost like brainstorm aspects of courage and how they show up and, and sort of like categorize those and like offer them as a, some sort of framework for people to start jiving. Maybe that's Go something, who knows, maybe that's that. for sure. Maybe we can do that now. Maybe that's like, maybe that could be like a side project that we can maybe like tap into. Sure. Uh, Cause I think functional frameworks right now for everyone who's playing the game are super useful. Cause I think there's a general disorientation that's happening. The other thing I just wanted to say, thank you so much for sharing, uh, you know, your, yeah, it's sort of the struggle with the current time, which I'm feeling as well, these emotional ebbs and flows. And I'll share my personal experience with it and my reflections on it is when certain pieces of information or certain projections of the future happen based on like all the information that I'm considering, there's a sense of disempowerment in, in my lower self, <clears throat> the one composed of, uh, you know, the, the elements that I have not purified yet, the, the, the human elements of survival circuits and other things comes online and, and starts telling me stories of fear, right? And these stories are disempowering stories of this will happen or you won't be able to do this or this is how you may be trapped in this situation. And through the process of seeing that occur, I've been countering it by identifying the storylines that start playing in my head and then countering them with different outcomes and different projections that I start seeding into reality. And it's been a very interesting process that the more I do that, the more empowered I become and the more agency I claim, right? So I've noticed that what the general narrative is doing right now, whether it's intended or not, is trying to capture me and everyone else into these disempowering narratives of compliance, of obedience, of giving away choice, of giving away all agency, and of, of projecting our own doom. So that's when, that's in a way you could see that mythologically as really dark magic, right? Because dark magic changes consciousness and, 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 and creates conviction within a human being to start running a certain program that completely degenerates them, puts them under a, a spell of a certain notion. So if we want to deal with like the real potent white magic here is we start, we disidentify from, I've been disidentifying more and more from the lower self, not denying it, not suppressing it, realizing it and really feeling into those concerns and fears, but then subverting it and saying, but here is an active, uh, willful alternative to this. So instead of going into unconscious compliance or acceptance of the narrative, it's a conscious framework of projecting. It's a creative response to the situation. And once we have a creative response to it, we are uh, we have this like blueprint that we're offering now for our own consciousness and the consciousness of other human beings, which we can start acting according to, instead of acting according to a reactive mode of um, hiding, preparing for, sort of like reacting to us instead of being an active node. Um, man, I keep. My apologies, I keep going onto these tangents and I'm not being able to like be very coherent with my trains of thought, but whatever, we'll go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, it it, it, whatever, yeah. wherever it goes. But one of the things you mentioned and one of the the notes that I, I made about uh, your work was just, uh, let me see. Yeah, I mean, the how, what you've put out in your work and and, what you just referred to in terms of what can the power of these narratives, these stories that that we tell ourselves or that we receive, 
it is like they're, they're digital spells. You know, you reference them as mimetic wars, digital spells, which create new relations to reality. And <clears throat> that's such a rabbit hole, right? Because it, it, it brings into question like, well, how is the reality you experience even constructed, right? Because I agree that you can encounter quote unquote digital spells, memes, ideas, artwork, et cetera, that can fundamentally change your perspective, your perception of, of what the reality is, can make you more hopeful, can make you more nihilistic, can make you more you know, courageous, can make you more enthusiastic. Like all these things are constantly playing and the, it's fascinating. I mean, it's a huge question as to why a certain one coalesces, right? What, why is it that the anxiety coalesces versus the hope co coalesces versus the, the fear versus the, you know, like why? And I think part of the answer is because on the one hand, we're bombarded with probably a, a, a di these digital spells that stem from a certain one of those uh, emotions, right? So like, let's say we're, to, to cast a wide net here, let's say we're bombarded with uh, fear-based information from the mainstream media and politics and all that kind of stuff, right? So the imagery and the information that we're just getting bombarded with if you, you know, you consult those resources is of that kind. So naturally that's gonna coalesce in you. But if you, if you redirect your perspective, which I think a lot of people are doing now, I'm saying like, there's nothing for me in the mainstream media. How do I curate my own, um, how do I curate my exposure to information such that I'm constructing the most truthful appraisal of reality possible, even accepting that that's impossible, right? Because just the very, the very action of exposing yourself, choosing to expose yourself to a certain information, you, you're, you're involved in that, in the process of what, of what reality uh, you ultimately end up seeing. But I see, you know, amongst the, the, the community that I'm a part of, and as I said before, kind of my uh, approach to things has long been like, how can we confront the most truthful version of ourselves and reality possible. And it, I mean, maybe is that the objective or do we want to try to tell ourselves and be exposed to stories that, that allow us to experience not just what reality is, but something more aspirational about perhaps what it can be, you know? And where should we fall there? Is that, I mean, and, and, and maybe the last thing I'll say about this before handing it over to you is it, it almost comes down to faith, right? Is, is the fundamental component of reality either good or loving or united? And if you believe that, then pursuing truth is ultimately just trying to open up the bandwidth to that place. And what springs forth from there through you is goodness for lack of a, a better term. However, if you don't have that faith, then what are you trying to open up the bandwidth to, I guess, if you're trying to see with clarity? Yeah, yeah, man, you said so many incredible things there. Um, yeah, yeah, again, I'm having this like impulse to say your question of how do we, and you phrased it so beautifully, I don't remember the, the words, but how do we even, how do we, I guess, 
approach things truthfully or i'm sorry i forget how you, you said that but again i feel like some sort of like round table of minds need to be to come together and almost as a as an urgent uh, offering to the world to start putting out these uh, the, these offerings these solutions that can you know emerge in complexity and, and accuracy but i feel that would be so useful for people even like in our communities um but yeah i agree that faith faith is really necessary faith in something greater and more transcendent gives us that light at the end of the tunnel that we can be magnetized by that we can anchor our activities toward without it i think we revert back to the lower lower circuits of the lower self which is more survival based and so even if we see that things are wrong that will make us just sort of uh try to profit from the situation as best we can and maybe position ourselves in the new tyranny uh, as best we can so we can be a functional node in it and i'm seeing some people do that and i'm still seeing people in the public sphere doing that people who should know better because they're functioning from a unfortunately i'm not very developed sense of self and reality um but but yeah man i you, you just said a lot of things i'm kind of uh, forgetting some of the key points that you said would you mind just reminding me like the last well, few things I, I, I think my my big perhaps unanswerable question was just that you know if, if you have that faith that something let's say again to use a, a broad term good underlies is the force that generates reality right? If that is good, then seeing with truth is the attempt at increasing the bandwidth to that thing. And as a result of doing that, more of it can come through you, right? But if there's, if you don't believe that, right? If you don't believe that what generates reality, call it God, call it source, whatever, whatever you want to call it, but the concept that something obviously orders the world, right? Something, uh, uh, there's a source from which things spring, there's, a, there's an order to how things function, wherever that comes from. If your faith is not that that is ultimately good, then presumably you, 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 know, you wouldn't even be trying to open up a dialogue or, or open the bandwidth with that because there's nothing of value in your mind there. And you know this possibly characterizes the, the kind of nihilistic, um, attitude that a lot of people around the world have today because and you know Nietzsche obviously famous for saying God is dead and and, and we we killed them right and then he goes on to predict what may may result from that and in many cases those, those predictions have have proven quite prescient um, and people kind of just laugh that off in the modern era right our hyper rational hyper materialistic times just say like oh you know religion is it, it's discarded so arrogantly and hubristically in my opinion you know not to say i mean obviously many many atrocious things have been done in the name of fill in the blank god religion what have you but these concerns have been literally central to all we know about humanity since as far back as we have records these concerns of trying to develop a map of meaning you know and i'm borrowing peterson's terminology here but that's ultimately what these pursuits are trying to do right they're trying to say like what is the order that animates this reality can we map it to some degree and the more detailed maps we can make of it the more we can graft it on to our interactions with reality to optimize for them to make them most quote unquote successful whatever that may mean and you know in my interpretation 
that means more of more things of transcendent value joy beauty love connection these sorts of things that, that you know you, you you literally can't put a price on them right yeah. um are able to manifest as a result of having a greater um accuracy or clarity between map and reality and to in our times just simply because we've advanced in the material domain so much to do away with the legacy of those pursuits is not only again such such a such a obvious example of, of hubris and arrogance in my opinion but also so detrimental and dangerous to our endeavor as human beings on this planet because when you remove that component what fills the void and i think part of the nihilistic attitude is each individual considers themselves a god or at the very least and see that's tricky because i think you know there's obviously a divine aspect in all of us but i, I like the paramount god or something else fills the void at the very least right maybe it's the state or maybe it's fame or maybe it's maybe it is the ego aspect of ourselves that fills the void but it, it doesn't seem like it's working out to me you know and and yeah. um yeah go ahead <laughs> yeah no man again such good points man I, I actually am really enjoying listening to you um yeah i want to say a few things about religion the exoteric and the esoteric religions and also this structure within our psyches that necessitates a, a hierarchy of some sort and some semblance of structure right so the um, profane, you know, Mercia Aliada, I, I can never pronounce his dear Romanian. Me, me, me neither. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, as he, you know, as he, he frames things as the sacred and the profane, within the profane world right now, we have these superstructures of, let's say, the communistic thinking or different, different ways of structuring things so that they're desacralized and that they're based on like government, bureaucracy, and very materialistic uh, kind of substructures. And human beings still need structures, so then they make that their god, right? Uh, whatever that substructure is. But unfortunately, because it's man-created, it, it leads nowhere. It is insufficient, and it will always sort of collapse into itself, and will need a, a whole new structure to prop it up and make sense of its failing failings. Not not economically, but I mean spiritually and psychologically, because it just it, it's not tapped into the transcendent. It's not tapped into source and this complete like open. It's, it's a closed loop of, of functioning. And so uh, what I'm seeing, I want to open up a few threads here. Actually, I wanted to open this up with you because I don't know where you stand with it. And, you know, the, actually the crypto community, which I assume is like maybe largely your audience. Uh, is that, would that be so? Or I'll, I'll clarify that in a bit. My audience is the, is the Bitcoin specifically, you know, community. And okay. we will definitely address that uh, through the course of this conversation, but I don't want to interrupt your flow right now. Okay, you know what, then I'm going to bookmark a few things because I'd love to uh, explore those with you and get your take on them, actually. So I want to double click later on. For now, we're bookmarking it, but the <laughs> split, because what you said actually brought up in mind something I've been considering deeply. It's the split between the organic and the synthetic streams of, of human development. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're alluding to, this desacralized aspect is the synthetic, right? It's, it's really uh, devolved down into like, man-made concepts and really going into you know it's going to yeah we can we can discuss that uh and then the the, the organic one is is a gr ever greater expansion 
into a greater singularity, whereas the synthetic is, is, is going down into this almost hell realm of like mm -hmm. a technological singularity. And right? how, so, just so, to so interrupt you for one second so I understand, how would you, what do you mean by synthetic? Like what? Yeah, that's, yes. That, or I mean, organic that, that too, I mean, what do you mean by both? No, it's, those, those are very good questions, which I'm still making sense of for myself. I have a felt sense, but it's completely reasonable that those have to be rationalized. So I see them in different orders. So on the physical, uh, the psychological, and the spiritual. So if we map that onto organic and synthetic, we'll see that the organic on the material level is, I mean, a biological organism that is inherently of nature, is not tapped into by foreign technologies or other agents that interfere with its sovereign uh, biological framework that interfaces with the field of greater intelligence, right? So I'll just say that. And th the other side is synthetic, uh, synthetic material is, is being tapped into by outside agents that interfere with its uh, manifestation, with its sovereignty, with its agency, and moving more into transhumanism, which you know, I'm not labeling as like entirely bad, but what I'm, you know, the merging of, of the human being with machine, there's an augmentation that starts tapping into and interfering with this connection to source, to God, and to one's own sovereignty. Because mm -hmm. it, it, anyway, it's a, it's a limited aspect that is put into an infinite aspect of you know, this biological function. Then on the psychological level, the organic and the synthetic are, the organic on the psychological level has to do with like self-regulation, uh, seeking of truth, calibrating with like proper emotions, calibrating based on love, joy, etc. And the synthetic psychological state has to do with uh, one, it could be tampered by technologies and other agents within the body that are foreign. But two, it's also uh, based on the NPC psychology. So the non-player character running of cultural scripts, right? Which are synthetic as in they're not derived of this natural flow of reasoning and sensing reality. Instead, one runs almost in a computerized binary way uh, and frames reality based on the box as I've illustrated within in shadow. And then on the higher level, the spiritual level, the organic and the synthetic, the organic and the spiritual level is tuned into the divine, to God, to an open source of intelligence that is way too large and vast for us to comprehend, which informs all activities and is like this fountain of, of incredible life force that revivifies and expands and harmonizes all aspects of existence and elevates it. Whereas synthetic on the spirit, the level of the spirit, the synthetic, is a, is a closed loop. It's tapped into a hive mind. So even, bef even if we don't go into AI and how AI can organize human consciousness and limit it based on its, its own programming and input, output, and incentives to, to behave a certain way, um, even before that, synthetic spirituality or consciousness has to do with, um, it's basically hijacked by egoic purposes and it serves the lower self and its its own uh, insecurities, et cetera. And now to go more uh, more into projecting where you know things and trends and billions of dollars are moving into right now, synthetic consciousness or spirituality is kind of a dead end. And <clears throat> like Rudolf Steiner has spoken about this. I don't know if you know Steiner's work at all, um, but he's an Austrian scientist slash mystic. Uh, you know, he, he predicted this a century ago and, you know, he, he has said some things about um, the technological aspect when not, when not approached in a moral, ethical way, in a conscious way, 
it's 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 basically an uh, an aspect of our collective unconscious manifesting in a technology that actually physically makes us all unconscious that means unconsciousness is just basically running patterns and and programs and scripts that are not open to consideration there's barely any choice so uh this great ai movement it poses that danger to consciousness to enclose it within its own realm of function and completely sever it from the greater intelligence and basically have it in this cul-de-sac um triumph of its own myopic you know limited intelligence uh but anyway that's maybe too, too many words and i don't know if oh, you want no. to say anything about yeah, that yeah sure sure I, i'd okay. love to com yeah. comment on that briefly um you know, we were talking before about how suffering, as difficult as it may be, ultimately allows for the expansion of consciousness and therefore allows for both consciousness to be transformed by it and for consciousness to transform it. And I understand, of course, the, the negative influence that <clears throat> some of these loops that you've, you've, these synthetic technological loops that you've been describing have on the world today, because as we've been discussing, you know, and sorry to uh, discriminate or disparage, you know, such a large group of people, but a lot of people, we use the terminology a lot, like a lot of people are asleep, right? They're, they're just, they're in the box, you know, from, from your film. And so they are in these recursive loops of input and programmed output, let's say. And that's, that is undesirable in my opinion, but the other aspect and why I never really perceive any technological advancement and maybe, I mean, well, at least technological advancement as being negative is because the, the flip side of that is that all of that externalization of our consciousness and our psyche and all of the different forces that create it and attempt to direct it in one way or the other that is a genuine bombardment of our consciousness that, that human beings have ostensibly never experienced, right? The amount of input and the amount, the, the exposure to the psyche of other people has never, I mean, it's orders and orders of magnitude greater now than it's ever been. And that is extremely stressful, like on a, even on an unconscious level, right? And that's probably why it's having these insidious effects because we don't realize just how, how stressful that is. Um, but on the same token, like, whether it's the stress of extreme suffering, absent technology, as we were uh, discussing before, or extreme stress, which you know is a form of suffering, a bombardment. Uh, you know, my example of those scary faces, for example, it's almost the same thing. Where, yes, it's it's a threat, let's say, but it's a threat. It's an opportunity disguised as a threat, and all of that activity. I, I'm just speculating here, but does it not just simply expand the domain of consciousness and therefore expand the domain of what consciousness can be and therefore open up new horizons for us to explore it through very carefully, you know, with our, you know, our warrior gear on maybe like walking that tightrope, but that seems like it's always the case, right? We, we're always going to be on the border of order and chaos, right? That is our our lot to navigate that continuously through the passage of time toward the greater evolution of our psyches, our consciousness, our lives, our cultures, 
right? That seems yeah. to be totally. how it goes. I'm in alignment with that. So yeah, let's let's stay on this thread then, because I I'd love to clarify my stance on it and where how I'm making sense of it as well. Because yeah. of course I have no firm convictions right now, just kind of like uh, explorations. But so I agree, and I think the very fact that we find ourselves in, in this technological age is uh, is a sign to me that this has to be gone through for us to reason with it, uh, make sense of it deal with it, enhance our lives and our consciousness with it, but doing so responsibly and consciously with awareness, ethically and morally. Now, the problem with technology as we are using it now is because by and large, we as human beings have not fully matured, right? This is where we, you know, a lot of us to various degrees are asleep. So most of us on this planet to various degrees are asleep. Some of us are extricating ourselves from the sleep and the various barnacles that hold on to us that, that kind of like have tapped into us so maybe seems like it right maybe yeah. yeah yeah and i think i think that i only feel that that's happening more because the pressure of the of the not yeah okay i'll just leave it at that actually i don't want to go on different tangents, <laughs> but yeah so so I, I feel like i totally agree with you about technology and its uses um i think it requires though a, an upgrade within our maturity and, and and an understanding of who we are and what we want and culturally right now i don't think we have that grounded anywhere there are pockets of people making sense of it but culturally uh i think the general story right now is who we are and what we want is basically we just want to have one pretend to be more than we are and i don't know it's just a soup of mixed up signals that is definitely not healthy and it easily falls prey of technology usurping our conscious agency of being like sovereign actors in this game and subsuming us into a program of being non-player characters running based on the script of larger bad actors right so technology makes this extremely easy so uh, you know, in communism back in Bulgaria, for instance, based on stories of my parents, like you could always bribe someone. You can always like through nepotism, know people and like navigate the communistic system or any totalitarian system, you know, with humans. If, if there's a technological network and a, and a framework installed that is totalitarian, you can't really negotiate with that. And, and it gets a, a lot scarier. And, and the things that you have to do and think and feel in order to get your sustenance from the system is almost non-negotiable, right? So, so that's one extreme. So that, that's where I think I wanna differentiate between conscious use of technology and unconscious use of technology. And my, my, my feeling about this and my projection, because I'm trying to see and project a, a, a kind of a positive generative view I think that's the responsible thing to do here uh, is that we will renegotiate our, our relationship to technology and we will use it at least if it's, even if it's some of us, even if it's half of the planet or maybe all of it, uh, we will have a healthy relationship to it and it will make our lives better and better. But I think we are in the precipice right now where so many resources are going into funneling technology in a direction that is actually not for the greater good, even though it pretends to be, and is not in service of, of the divine unfolding of, of, of our being. Um, and it's unfortunately, it's hijacking the lower impulses of, of 
whether it's greed or convenience or just the sexiness of the nature of technology or all these promises of alleviating the fear of death and you know kind of like more immature things that you know many people have not worked out seducing us through those lower impulses and, and taking us on that path so i think that's my general stance of it yeah you know i it seems to me that technology and this may be the, like the, the obvious statement of the century, but it is the externalization of our consciousness, of our psyche. I mean, whether it was the first, you know, the first wheel to have been carved out of stones, like I want this thing to go over this land more quickly or more easily or whatever. So, you know, and, and so we externalize it. We build our tools, our representations of things that first happen in our minds and in our psyches, right? And so technology writ large, I think is, the constant, likely never-ending process of making manifest the mind, right? What does psychedelic stand for? It's an interesting, interesting parallel. And that, I don't think that'll ever stop. And, and so the, the question then becomes, and this is what we've been exploring, is like, well, what's in there? Who, who are you? You know, and, it, and this is why it's so imperative that people do answer those questions, that people do confront the self, that people do have that unending journey of self-exploration and introspection because absent that you'll be wrapped up in the torrent of the the externalized psyches of everybody else and their motivations for you right and that you know that's why the responsibility to do that for each individual is so important and you know even before all this modern you know social media and ai and stuff like it's so interesting to look at human culture through the lens of what we value, i.e. like the, the industries that are erected around our behavior. Like, isn't it funny that like Hollywood and movies and TV is such a big, like we, we, there, there's such a demand for us to see the reflection of the heroic, the tragic, the comedic aspects of our psyche that will go and spend collectively hundreds of billions of dollars a year on it. Or you could say the same for health. Like there's such a abdication of our own responsibility for our health that the pharmaceutical industry is you know one of the globally biggest industries in the world and, and so on down the line of, of you just look at all the major industries and uh, more than anything what they tell you is things about us and things about yourself mm -hmm. and and the the fact that the the feedback loop of more modern technology is accelerated just means that you know, perhaps it means that it's more easy for us to get scooped up by it. It's more easy for us to be blinded by it. It's more easy for us to unconsciously feed into it. But the flip side of that, of course, is that you can drop a, you know, the hero is equipped with the same tools. Let's put it that way. And so someone like yourself who've made, who's made a, a film like In Shadow, I mean, that's like, that's a virus in, in the program, right? And mm -hmm. that... It, the, the truth, let's say the truth represented in there, at least as far as you're concerned as the creator, comes through you and you find a way to use these tools to animate, to express, to give an external existence to these ideas and the truth that you're, that you're grappling with yourself. And it goes out into the world and to the degree that that truth resonates or speaks to elements of the psyche of the people that encounter it, it's, 
it's transformative, right? It interrupts, or at least it provides another signal counter to one that they may be bombarded with on a regular basis. And this is why they like in all revolutions, and you know, I, I think we're perhaps we're amidst several converging revolutions at the moment, but art is so important. And I say this as someone who doesn't have an artistic bone in his goddamn body, right? Like I just not, you ask me to draw a stick, man, I'll do like what three-year-olds do. I'll draw the head with the legs and the arms, you know, like, but I, I love to see more art involved in this because despite the constant bombardment and despite how asleep someone might be, a piece, a, a piece of art can pierce all of that in an instant if it's the right piece, right? If it, if it speaks to the right element <clears throat> of the psyche of the observer. And I guess for, I mean, that's hopeful at the very least, right? That, that we can, that at least that is occurring in tandem with the torrent of inputs to help balance it and to help um, mitigate the degree to which people are unconsciously wrapped up in it. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I think one of the functions of good art is to be able to rewrite the connections of uh, conceptualizing reality that people have, which are generally automated responses to reality, right? So we have assumptions um, which we don't negotiate as we walk through the world daily because it's it has quite a cognitive load to it. You know, it's difficult to constantly be renegotiating every perception as you go in. That's that's what the enlightenment state presumably is, right? It's living without, beyond the conceptualizations and seeing straight and real. But um, I think art is a precursor to that state in a way that it decalcifies the the real, um, the kind of like the, 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 the deeply calcified series of perceptions and symbolic representations that we've accepted about reality. And because art functions through symbolic imagery, it's able to subvert or re, uh, recontextualize or redefine certain symbols and certain symbolic relationships so that the psyche can immediately perceive that as opposed to go through the discursive and verbal um, reasoning of it. So if, if the, and here specifically, I can speak about music and, and visual art. They, they're able to do that by going directly to the felt sense of the human being. You know, music for me, I feel it much more emotionally and really deeply. It can move me and rewire things for me. And visual art can, yeah, can rewire it in a different way. So yeah, I agree that it's, it, is, it's kind of, it is a digital spell. You know, I've been, I've been referring to some art and it's, uh, it is a virus. Um, yeah, I think yeah, I'd love to see see more more art be used used in this way. I think we definitely need it. One of the things I wanted to ask you, uh, which is a little off topic, but you just brought up music. Um, the the music in the film is so perfect, you know, uh, it, like that that kind of white hot din that brings an intensity and a I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but how did you select the movie, the, the music for the film? Because it just seems so apt. Um, I wrote a lot of the short film to uh, a track by uh, 
an ambient electronic band from Sweden called Carbon-Based Lifeforms. And one of their tracks really stayed with me. And it had this sense of uh, progressive moving melancholy, but almost like a paternal guidance. Like, it's okay to look at this. It kind of hurts, but you're good. Just keep going. You have to do this. Like that kind of feeling. Uh, there was urgency and, and some unease, but also a sense of uh, emerging triumph. And so when I spoke to my friend uh, who wrote the music and composed it and, and made it, I kind of referred those, those kind of uh, feelings to him. And so, um, yeah, he, he, he did an incredible job imagining and, and, and manifesting that, that sense. Uh, and beyond, beyond that, you know, the specifics, we just worked on an actual tying it in with the imagery and what we needed in specific areas, but really it's, it's, it's him. I, I gave him a certain guidance of what I wanted and then he, he kind of imagineered it. So, yeah. Well, I think it was, it was perfect, uh, for what it was. Um, <clears throat> I want to go back to, we were talking about maps of meaning, right. And, and how they help us properly hierarchically organize value and how that is actually in my opinion essential for consciousness we don't have consciousness without without hierarchical arrangements of value because doing so is actually what allows you to make a decision to do anything in the world you decide that that action is is more valuable or than this action and one of the things that you know we've kind of lamented the complete um like this how, how people have done away with uh, religion in, in modern culture and i'm not an apologist for the ills of religion I, I i think that's clear but i i'm humble enough to recognize that doing away with the central inquiry of our ancestors what has been the central inquiry of our ancestors for all of recorded human history out of, you know, so willy nilly out of a perceived superiority of rationale and intellect is probably mistaken approach to things. And again, what, what we were saying, what they do is like fit, the reason why that map is valuable is because it allows us to, to frame it on reality, which permits the proper hierarchical ordering of things. Now, if you play this, I think part of the religious endeavor is to determine what's the best thing, what ends up at the top of the hierarchy as a result of this process. <clears throat> so consciousness both requires us to this relative valuation between all things in order for it to have a structure to order to a, permit action, but it also elicits the thing of utmost value because as a result of let's just say for simplicity, there's, you know, there's 20 things in our mind. Well, this one's better than that one. And this one's better than that one. And this one's better than that one. This one's better than that one. When we wind up with a thing at the top of the hierarchy and that thing ends up ordering everything below it. It's this one. And it's that one. It's that one. And I think the function of consciousness and the attempt of religion is to determine the the proper process for ordering that correctly, for determining what should be at the top of the hierarchy. And perhaps unfortunately, because maybe because this was so important 
that it was packaged in a way just very susceptible to misinterpretation and we wind up in a place where we're at. Um, but I, so I think that's what's important about it. And I think part of the reason why we've gone away from it after several thousand years of, of even subconsciously relying on it because it's, made, it's, it's persisted in being a central part of human culture up until you know even the last hundred years or so, even the last 50 years. In, and in some cases, you know, it's still very central. But I wonder if the imagery, the metaphor, the symbolism used to help communicate the contours of that map are simply outdated for the world we're moving into, right? We, we discussed all of this input from the digital landscape. Let's just assume a digital world is emerging. And of course it is, right? We, we have that screen in front of our faces and we dive into a digital world and we have access to infinite information if we want it. And pretty soon that's gonna be on our heads and in our eyelids and you know, we'll, 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 presumably we'll be existing in digital worlds increasingly as we go forward in time. And the, the metaphor and the symbolism and the sheer expansiveness and dynamism of let's say that expanded world, and I do think it is an expanded world, kind of nullifies the power of some of the symbolism and narrative in the old maps. And so I think what will be required is new maps of meaning, new maps of value to be grafted onto this world to try to make sense of it. And also, as we've been discussing, to try not to let be more negative or, or um, dangerous elements of it destroy us. Right? We, we need a map to be able to navigate that properly. And this is kind of my setup for, for discussing Bitcoin, because I think, and you referenced a number of times uh, already in this talk, you know, the, the value and the importance of a pillar of unchanging truth around which everything else can be organized, right? And, and I guess part of the religious discussion is also like, well, what happens if your pillar of truth is the wrong thing, right? What, what, happened if, what happens if everything is oriented around a falsity or a corruption of something? And I think we might both agree that in today's modern society, we probably are oriented around the wrong truth or falsity or corruption generally. And, you know, a lot of people who aren't in the Bitcoin space or haven't spent a lot of time with it just kind of think it's oh like you know a tech development it's a new money okay it's out of the hands of government that's kind of cool but it's not like that transformative really and you know those who are deep in the weeds like in this space like myself see it as a far more um profound thing that a a form of unchanging incorruptible truth is now available to people of the world where it was not before. And a truth that everyone can develop consensus around, but nobody can change. And interestingly, you know, talking about spells and, and art and language, a truth that it's almost like a spell in itself because ultimately it's just language, right? But it's a, it's a, it's a language that we all coalesce around to organize. And this is the point of, you know, Forgive me, this will be a little bit less articulate than, than previous things because it's kind of complex, but I think it's that unchanging truth provides us with an opportunity to properly orient those value hierarchies that I was um, 
referring to before, because they allow for pristine communication of signal between people of preferences and values. Whereas that signal has always had an intermediary. It's always been clouded or blocked or distorted in some way. For if we have perfect communication of preferences between people, it doesn't guarantee utopia or it doesn't guarantee proper outcome. In my opinion, it's just the best possible basis on which to strive for it. Because at, at the very least then, I'm contending with the truth of the signal that you're emitting. You're contending with the truth of the signal that I'm emitting. And that permits us the best chance at orienting our value hierarchies properly, because at least we're contending with truthful information. And that's part of the, in my opinion, profound innovation and profound impact that Bitcoin has brought to the world. And, you know, that I think very few people are as yet from you know familiar with or appreciate mm -hmm. yeah totally i would agree with you on that and you know hopefully it doesn't disappoint your audience too much but i am kind of a newbie in, in this sphere i've been lagging behind uh you know i have put my put, put my myself in, in the game you know materially speaking <laughs> um but yeah i would agree with you on that because i think it basically Bitcoin clears away some of the static that Empire has created and this intermediary uh, nonsense that they've been controlling for a while, which uh, levels the playing field and, and does allow for that communication, which is grounded in, in a firm agreement. And I think it's, it's great to clear away the weeds so that our communication and our striving toward a more immaculate and harmonious uh, experience of reality and the building of a reality can, can start happening without being interfered with, with, with all these aberrant signals of empire. Yeah. You know, because I, 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 my, the psychedelic pursuits, right. They, you, you, and this, these, this spiritual journey that we've been digging into, <clears throat> you come down out of it, or you come back into, you know, physical body and you, the process of integration takes place. And for me, changing myself, I recognize that, you know, changing the self is the most important task, but, and, you know, a transformation of an individual can greatly affect other individuals and so can art and so can language and so can speech. But I was always wanting for better tools, better weapons for, you know, for kind of fighting this metaphorical battle. And again, you know, learning about and stumbling upon Bitcoin has really given me that you know what I've what I've been seeking almost the perfect union between the work of the individual and this technology and for two reasons one you know we've been talking about sovereignty a little bit I mean in my opinion and I we you asked me if it was crypto or bitcoin before for a number of reasons but the primary one being bitcoin has the greatest probability and chance of resisting change, of actually being incorruptible and immutable, i.e. via censorship resistant. What resistance, whether censorship is from the state or an individual actor or a group of people that are well-intended but have the wrong opinion of things, like just it's, it's the most immutable. And the fact that it's immutable is so very important. And that's why I place all of my emphasis and, and time on, on that one specifically. Not to say that there will never be any use case or value in anything else. The market is, is saying that there is right now. How long that lasts, if that's something that uh, maintains into the future, I don't know. But I do know 
that the most important thing, as far as I can see, is, is Bitcoin. And the fact that it is this way of communicating value without an intermediary um, is a re-sanctification, in my opinion, or, or actually a, a greater sanctification than we've ever had of the sovereignty of the individual. Because if you can, if you can protect the, you know, the value of your work, you, the, the time and energy that you've expended and the surplus you've generated as a result of that, if you can protect that in a way that nobody can touch it or, or take it from you, and you can send it and communicate it in a similar fashion, then yeah, I mean, I'm, I, that speaks to the divine sovereignty of each individual. And in, in a practical way out in the culture and in, in the world and the economy as it exists today, all those intermediaries and all those institutions that derive their power from various forms of dependency for derive their power as a result of a lack of the ability for the individual to preserve their sovereignty. That's why they all exist, right? And so how, what is the function of government when they can't surreptitiously or overtly tax their, uh, their citizens, right? Whether it's a, a coerced, you know, overt tax, like you owe 30% of your income, or it's the far more um, insidious one of inflation where they're able to siphon off as much as they want of the wealth of their citizenry. What happens to the main institutions that benefit from closeness and access to capital, like big business around the world today? What happens when that revolving door between big business and, and government shrinks as a result of both of those institutions being disempowered in various ways by a growing empowerment of the individual? Yeah. Uh, so this is why I, 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 and I don't think I've done a great job at explaining this, but why I think the kind of spiritual domain and this seemingly separate domain of technology and money is far more wrapped up with each other than people initially think. And I, I guess, I, yeah. No, I agree because totally, because um, within our cultural immaturity that we may be coming out of, uh, there's a parasitic relationship, like you said, right? Between those who are creating the rules and siphoning energy in the form of resources, time, you know, currency, which is really time and energy and creativity. Um, as, as we mature, we are extricating ourselves from that unconscious relationship. So living within the shadow of that cultural parasitic relationship and, and in, in many ways, a necessary relationship perhaps for many people and may still be just because it requires a lot of agency and sovereignty to be able to extricate oneself and take self-responsibility for one's sustenance. But that is the maturity of the spirit, right? So as we're renegotiating this relationship of the collective, I think for us, those of us who choose to mature um, into greater states of awareness, we need to take our sovereignty back from these institutions and these relationships. So Bitcoin offers that. And it's kind of like this immaculate gift right now, which offers, offers the maturity to be put back into our hands and to claim self-responsibility. And res responsibility for oneself is no small task. Like that's a that's a that's a huge thing that we're all talk about courage, about. right? Big time courage, big time expansion, and bandwidth capacity to process information, and um, really taking authorship of our experience in our life. So uh, you know, as we do that, yeah, I totally concur that Bitcoin is is this this tool 
to shift from a parasitic relationship to uh, completely dis dissociating and like unplugging ourselves from these tentacles that siphon our energy and freeing ourselves so that our awareness and this attention economy, our attention now is realigned into productive generative aspects of life as opposed to aspects that siphon our energy, our creativity, and actually make us submit to working systems that don't really help us evolve, but just make us, you know, like a lot of work is generally processing things that don't really lead anywhere. They're just processes that gave you money in exchange, right? So yeah, big time. I'm excited about the potential of this and where it will go. Yeah, I think that's very well put. And, you know, you made me think when you talk about that it's no small task to take that because this is a, the, the piece that's often missed, right? People talk about freedom and sovereignty, but the other side of that coin is responsibility. And I think in many ways, even though the tools haven't always been there to make it easier or even available at all, that's not why, you know, things are, people are so asleep as they are, right? Because it is still possible to wake up or have some degree of sovereignty. What's happened, it seems, is that we've, we've voluntarily chosen in many cases to take the easier option, which is ultimately dependence on some other person or some other institution. You, you, you tell me what's best for my health. You take care of my health. You take care of my money. You take care of my, my this. You, you, know, you make sure my access to food, like all of these things. And we can all appreciate that, right? Because convenience is... An, our, our way of accessing more time and time is one of the, the experience of time at least and that's one of the most scarce things we have so yeah we we want more time so that we can have more experience of life and convenience is an avenue or at least we you know we think it is an avenue of getting more of it but what do we give up in that trade and i think modern culture is an example of having gone way too far in, in giving up uh giving up something of greater value than the convenience you're getting back in return. And we're starting to see the consequences of that. And I think, as you say, you know, what's happening with Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin is prevent, pre presenting perhaps a more overt choice in that dynamic that's ever been presented and saying, hey, do you want greater freedom and sovereignty that, that then has ever been available to, let's say, a human being inside of a culture? And if the answer is yes, then it's also saying, here's the responsibilities that you have to accept in order to gain access to that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are, have a aversive reaction to that, you know, it's because like, Hey, I too scary too too much responsibility. I don't, I don't want to do that. But the flip side is more and more people all the time are trickling in and saying, yeah, that's a trade I will make because I realize I increasingly realize and recognize the value of freedom and sovereignty in whatever ways I can manifest it. And if it requires my courage, if it requires my work, if it requires me to overcome elements of myself that are less refined than I would like, then I'm going to, I'm going to engage those things and approach those deficiencies so that I can actually avail of that opportunity that's now in front of me. And I mm -hmm. see that happening a lot with um, people that are kind of way down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And, you know, just to tie a knot on the, the value conversation we were having before. It's interesting what happens when value is more properly arranged and you're more oriented around and your orientation of value 
I'm lacking the right words, but it's more properly arranged by some means. And what I found is that when that happens, and, and, and particularly, so let's assume that Bitcoin is providing access to sovereignty and freedom, the likes of which may never have existed again in the, in the socio-cultural realm. Let's just assume that for the sake of this conversation. Then the value of that instrument is, for people that value freedom, is almost infinite, right? It, it's as valuable as a thing in relation to, tr to other people can be. And as a result, I, I find that it causes a separation between it and everything else of lesser, let's say, frivolous value in one's life. Because let's, let's just say that the opportunity cost puts so much pressure on everything that, you, you know, our modern consumerist culture, right? That we, I'm sure we all discuss this often. But the fact that Bitcoin exists at, as this extreme kind of gravity well of value what I see happening is people start to look at their life and say like, well, would I rather buy that new 50 inch TV or would I rather increase my sovereignty and freedom by devoting that, putting that into the gravity well that is Bitcoin. And what you see with the, you know, the more hardcore among us is that they end up leading fairly like aesthetic uh, lives. Like, and we have a number of jokes in the, in the, in the space, like, you know, if you still have chairs, you're short Bitcoin sort of thing, right? Because you're everything of relatively lesser value gets subsumed by this thing of greater value. And what I find super interesting about that is what remains when, when that process occurs. And again, it seems to me to be, and I'm, I probably have, I'm sure I have my own biases in many ways, but what remains is the things that aren't subject to the opportunity cost of that gravity well, i.e. the things that cannot be valued. What I mentioned earlier, think, you know, transcendent values like beauty, love, health, relationships, nature. These things, you can't put a price on them like a 50 inch flat screen, right? And so what seems to be happening is that because of that proper orientation of the thing of greatest interpersonal value, you get a separation of frivolous market value, let's call it, and transcendent value. And, it be, and the latter becomes more apparent to people as they go through this journey. And so again, you know, the, you, you can't uh, separate that from the spiritual pursuits because what, what are the spiritual pursuits other than trying to determine the things of greatest value and then refining them and leaning into them and integrating them to, to the extent possible. And I actually think that Bitcoin is facilitating that journey tremendously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, I, totally. I agree. Extricating oneself from that, reevaluating. Yeah, for sure. It makes sense. One thing that occurred to me while you were speaking is also getting in right relationship with, well, it's the same thing that you're saying with our value system. And one thing that occurs to me when I think of Bitcoin or even spreading it out to cryptocurrencies is um, if we're not aligned with a higher, higher purpose, um, I think it things can go easily into greed. It's, you know, it's very, very normal and accumulation and a feeling of lack and emptiness that needs to be filled. And then there's the other, the other aspect, which is a more noble aspect, seeing ourselves as creative nodes and a network and an ecosystem of expansion and, and being of service, being of service to that while also being of service to ourselves and our own expansion. So um, from there, I think, one thing that I'm seeing, I'm sorry I'm deviating, but this has been on my mind is oh, with certain wow. blockchains, and I'm not very fluent or current with everything, but certain blockchains that I'm seeing, you know, are being coerced and used by empire. 
for purposes that are not very good. You know, that means that like the VPAS or any other sort of like uh, really enslaving systems of the social credit score and even more nefarious aspects uh, are put onto some of these, you know, emergingly successful blockchains and investing in that and supporting that. It's, it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of, a, a lot of, incentive to do so and it's kind of sexy and it's profitable and it seems maybe even like counterculture in some ways but at the same time it's it's really actually fortifying empire and creating this actual prison system um so if we're not aligned properly to why why we are doing this and what the process is that we're going through then i think um this this fallen world this kind of maya that we're in can grasp some of these unclarified value systems within ourselves and really seduce us into doing things for the ecosystem of nodes that is degenerative and, and quite damaging. But uh, anyway, that's a, a no, no. Negative. That's a great. That's a great okay. point. Let's let's hang on. Hang on to that one for a second. Um, yeah. I agree fully, and this is why. I don't know if you've interacted with the Bitcoin space much, but on first impression, some people come in and they get a sense that like this is a very abrasive, toxic sort of place. And my, my response to that has always been, really? So you're telling me that your pursuit of truth is so feeble that some nasty words and some... some uh, you know, some bad attitudes or whatever is going to keep you from pursuing that line of inquiry. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm going to have to say that maybe it's not as genuine as you might like to think, right? That, that's kind of my initial response to that. But your point is, is well made and it is a good one. And what I would say is this is blockchain, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain exists to resist censorship, to maintain immutability you know, and ostensibly that's what blockchains exist for. It doesn't make much sense for the sensor to have a blockchain because, you know, then all they're doing is they're preserving their capacity as the sensor, right? So we're going to see a lot of these central bank digital currencies emerge. You know, I think we would all agree that, that the current monetary systems globally, the fiat monetary system, which this year turned 50 years old, is at the end of its rope. And what do you know, there's a circumstance that kind of emerged that allowed for a real nail to be put in the coffin, which is this enormous debt and money printing that all countries have been doing over the last 18 months, right? Whatever theory you ascribe to, whatever, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. But the point is, is I think they will invoke these central bank digital currencies as a solution to the problems that are, end up being, end up emerging as a result of the, the treatment of this system and the operation of the system, those will be bad for sure, right? Those are greater degree of control, greater degree of centralization, greater degree of surveillance, greater degree of censorship, everything. The reason why I focus on, on Bitcoin is because all that matters here is what is the greatest source of truth, i.e. What can, what, what can we use to orient our values and communicate value that has the least likelihood of ever being corrupted? And that is Bitcoin. And so, like I said before, all of these, because you're right. I mean, let's say a huge portion of the actors in the space are either the censor themselves or other groups of people that are just chasing easy money and it's a hype thing and that's what's going on. 
I'm willing to admit that there's probably other projects that have well-intended and well-meaning groups of people working on them. In my opinion, they're just not properly valuing what this phenomenon represents. And as a result, they're not properly, they're not engaging in the one that's most likely to net the greatest benefit. And so again, hence, hence the focus on Bitcoin. But there, there was one thing that you mentioned where people have to be careful to, uh, you know, the aspect of greed, right? And, and to, to not become empty and to fill themselves up with the right things. I think you're right. And, and, and that's a balance everybody has to strike. But I also think it's interesting that one's, one's greed, as I kind of was, I was articulating before, one's greed for Bitcoin almost seems to empty people out of the detritus, right? The, the bullshit that's been accumulated, the, the perverse system and objects of value that have resulted from their conditioning in this culture seems to empty them out of that and fill them up with those things of transcendent value that I was referring to. And so I don't want to say that's exclusively what happens because like, again, another uh, trope in, in the space is like everybody's short Bitcoin, like everybody wants more Bitcoin. And so everyone works hard and tries to accumulate as much as possible. And you know, of course that could, that can fall into the realm of obsession. But I think for most people, it falls into the former realm that I was discussing, where empties the bad stuff, fills it up with good. And then as a result of being in this networking community of people who, who perceive value in a similar way, what it motivates is a desire for each individual to contribute real value, because real value is a far more clear uh, prospect now. And so my observation of, of people that are in this space is, they see it, they get it, they, they're set on fire with a desire to learn and understand more. And then what they want to do is produce value. They, they want to listen to the signal that's coming from that space and try to use their talents, their work, their time, their energy to produce value to it in order to receive that in return. And again, there, there, there's, there's definitely a danger there, but I think it's more opportunity or, or more more good than bad, for, for lack of a better term. Totally. I, I hear you. And I think my comment was more geared toward certain other altcoins, especially technology serving, um, you know, like Great Reset, Agenda 21 goals and stuff right. like that. Right. Um, and, and, you know, as you were saying, it's interesting. I feel like I got this image of like, it, it's very cool how you're framing this, like putting all this unnecessary stuff into Bitcoin in a way it's starving the system, it's starving the beast, which needs to be starved, right? That's exactly the, right. Yeah, the parasitic relationship. So by starving it, it's like uh, renegotiating our value systems, extracting our energy in the form of resources or commitments or whatever it is, and putting that in Bitcoin, which right now is, mythologically speaking, it's this orange totem, right? <laughs> and it's this totem that we're like energizing. Uh, of course, I just want to like playing devil's advocate. I do want to caution like the idolatry aspect of consciousness is interesting also to be in right relationship with because we, we do. pause on that. Let's let's hit that one next because I'd love to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. You, I wanted you to not lose the, the train of thought. For sure. I think I was almost done there, but I think oh, okay, I, I'm okay. just like riffing on this. And I think it is cool to start the system, put it in this sort of like boom right now. That's a, a, again, a totem pole. And, you know, mythologically, I think we both speak that language and appeals to me. And what happens from there, it's going to be interesting because I think what's going to be broadcast is based on the collective magic uh, 
the the collective sort of like magic we can imbue with our with our agreements and start projecting this new world from that totem right Ex uh, exactly yeah. extremely well put and so but again you are wanting to have as broad a view as this as, of this as possible i agree you know and we've referred it to it as a pillar as a totem of truth of sovereignty of freedom of of uh, proper value orientation and as you say, I think, you know, we talk about the Bitcoin Renaissance a lot. And part of the reasoning for that comes from an analysis of monetary history and kind of looking at why the qualities of the money have downstream effects on culture and society, and perhaps the greatest downstream effects on those things. And why we have this, again, another trope, we say, fix the money, fix the world. And of course, that's overly simplistic, but the, the point is clear in that if you can fix the money, then a lot of the things downstream from it, the institutions, the relationships, all of those things are greatly rectified and, that, and, a, and a renaissance can emerge from that as you were articulating. But what is in, in the, to use analogies to other you know, mythological understandings or, or realms, what are the dangers of having totems that you rely on to such a degree? Well, there's a, I think we can go into, possibly we can go into absolutism, right? And creating, again, the idolatry is creating a God of something, of a framework, any framework that may be helpful, but if we put too many of our resources or um, into, into energizing that as sort of the, the absolute wholeness of, you know, of, you know, everything, it's, it, it, I think, uh, and I'm not saying that that's happening. It's just a danger of the human mind tends to go into absolutes to have certainty and to have a grasp on things. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have a full conviction of this. I think maybe, I guess we're, we're thinking our way into this, but what are the yeah. pitfalls? I guess being blindsided to perhaps being open to other, other pathways that are analogous, that are helpful, maybe not being a bit too too form and, 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 and rigid with, with certain frameworks. I think those are the general, those are the general threats that come up whenever we, we I think, uh, give all power to anything, however you know, functional it is, something that proves successful for us. Let me ask you this, because I don't have, you know, on that particular topic, I'm, nothing's really emerging uh, for me. Like, I, I, don't get me wrong, I understand like we can't go into anything without a consciousness of the threats, the risks, you know, the positive negative, there's a positive negative side of everything, right? So if we want to extract the most of the positive, I think we need to be aware of the extent of the negative. And, and that may even be the very process that allows us to, to do that. Um, we touched on Mercia Merci Eliade or however, however you pronounce his name a bit earlier. And he coined this term, that uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to articulate some of these thoughts in a, in a written piece that I'll be releasing hopefully next week, but he coined this term hierophanies. And these are things that he describes as things that manifest the sacred in the world. And my understanding of how he articulates they do that is that they are a greater representation of deep truth than other relative to other things. And so again, this kind of gets back to the notion that like, why is truth so valuable? Well, I think it might be because it 
it opens up, it, it broadens the bandwidth with what is. And if what is, is the thing of greatest value, you know, like the source, God, whatever, then truth is, is and the degree of truth is how you communicate with it and, and how much and to what degree you communicate with it. And I think he would say that the hierophanies are things that allow you to expand your relationship to God, source, the divine, et cetera. And the reason why I, I, you made me think of it is because like, well, whether it's an idea or an object, you know, you, it could become that totem, right? So I, I guess my question was like, well, okay, if we accept that premise, and I, of course, I understand many will not, but if we accept that the, the sacred does manifest itself in different relative capacities and amounts in the world, in varying ideas and objects and everything, and people and everything, what is the proper relationship to have to it, right? Like what, how do you not fall prey to the negative aspects of idolatry, let's say, you know? Mm -hmm. So, it, because by ver if you really believe that the, the sacred has been manifest in the world and that you've identified it and, and you can engage with it, then that's by virtue of that belief, it's gonna manifest a very strong, affinity you know affinity to that thing a very strong reaction and you're going to want to inquire about it and use it and integrate it to the extent possible mm -hmm. but is it exclusively good if well, it's if it's if it's closeness to god what, what eliade would say like the harafanis yeah. sorry just a last statement on it is an ability to develop a closer relationship with god in symbol idea or form is there a negative aspect of that that's, yeah, I think this is such a beautiful inquiry that's emerging from this. It's really fascinating. So yeah, I, I really like the way you put that. Uh, yeah, I think it, it is a vessel, could be a vessel of the divine to the degree that we collect those people in the space of it collectively imbue it with higher meaning aligned with higher values, right? The degree to which the ecosystem is, is littered with like lower value systems, which I don't think it is, then it will it will be dissonant to the higher source, right? So if we imbue it with these higher values and we, one of them being starving the beast system or starving the fallen world of illusions, that is already, that means there's, there's a freeing that's happening. That already is aligned with higher values. That means more truth is coming into the world by virtue of lessening untruth, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then the other part is, are we, collectively then within the I, I don't know what i'm saying me i'm not that i'm not that involved in the bitcoin system but i hear i'm for, sure for, you will be soon <laughs> exactly and, and for camaraderie's sake you know within the spirit of the community i want to align myself to it you know yeah. brotherhood sisterhood whatever um we are we then exhibiting those values that are higher values such as are we do we see ourselves as nodes within a network that's harmonizing on higher orders and greater octaves of experience are we offering more and more growth for all to come onto, you know, this, this sort of like train or this totem to expand the, the aperture of, of our vision, of our attention, of our, even down to like love, joy, uh, and ease of being on this planet. So I think it's just basically the, to the degree that we show up and use this tool for higher values is the degree to which it will be aligned and infused by, by, divine uh, the divine source 
because I think totems just generally the way they work in my understanding of them is they, yeah, they resonate with whatever their archetype is. So, you know, if you carve something that looks like a frog or a rock of certain, a certain sort that resonates within that mineral kingdom or what the archetype within, and sorry, I'm, I'm convoluting this, but ultimately, yeah, it has to resonate with the higher frequency. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the, yeah. I think two points I'd like to respond to that. One is I agree with you. We have to be careful not to assume to necessarily know what the, you know, quote unquote resonance with the higher octave or however we want to characterize this, that looks like in relation to something that's novel. Because we have our ideas of what that looks like and we've discussed many of them in this conversation. But if we're encountering the emergence of something that is truly novel, then we have to be careful not to prejudge what, what emerges as a result of interaction with that because we don't we haven't experienced yet, we haven't contextualized it yet, we haven't determined what the proper expression that emerges from that necessarily is, right? The other interesting thing is we you, you said we imbue the idol, the object, the idea. I think in certain cases, and this may indeed be the power. The, the how the, the idea of the hierophany or, or the idol, how you maybe kind of classify them in some way or determine their scope or whatever, uh, is how much they imbue the people that interact with it. And I, I think it's clear from what I've discussed around it so far that like, I think that's the case and I'll use that's that's happening with bitcoin and i'll use two examples one i think just generally speaking like well let me start with this with 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 truth right like one of the reasons why i have such a dedication to pursuing truth is because i know the work of I, my my faith is that actual truth is transformative and if it hasn't transformed you you haven't encountered it, you know? And I, I almost do that. Well, I think that's the most efficient way of seeking knowledge and, and wisdom is not always fighting tooth and nail for it. But if you can just try to, again, open that aperture, see with the utmost clarity, if it is actually truth and you believe it to be, it will transform you. And, you know, of course, the question is, how does it transform you? What elements of yourself does it diminish? What elements does it... Uh, promote or, or expand, but I think, and so truth has an element of absoluteness. And if we carry that over to this phenomenon uh, anomaly in Bitcoin, what is the, what would, what would be the expected result of encountering an unchanging absolute truth? And I think it's, it's relatively fair to say, well, if the thing can't be changed, then the other part of that equation is the thing that must change in relation, in, as a relationship. So if, if the truth, if, if the thing, is, yeah, if, if, if it's not possible for that to change, then I think the person who engages it is the only one susceptible to change. And therefore the impetus or the drive is almost entirely on them to change. And then, the reason, you know, the feed into what we, what you were saying is, how does this, how do these totems of truth, not just become things that we imbue with meaning, 
How do they imbue us? And I would say, one, they're absolute so that we can't change them. And so the, 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 they, they, at, a, at the very least, they also imbue us. Let's not say it's only a one-way street, but they imbue us. And then the question is, well, with what? Well, let's look at their characteristics. What, what meaning, what characteristics are they emitting? And you know, maybe we don't wanna to get too stuck in the weeds with it, analyzing the details of Bitcoin, but let's just say one in particular is that everyone is accorded the same treatment and respect and fairness, i.e. the rules of the game are the same for everybody and nobody can cheat. So you have truth and fairness as a fundamental characteristic of this unchanging totem. And so as a result, I think if we agree that that unchangingness allows for it to imbue people that interact with it, then its characteristics in this case, uh, uh, trust, truth, and, and fairness also become ideals and values that it imbues in the people that interact with it. And then what you might expect to see is that the people that most interact with it, interact with it most embody and express those ideals that have been imbued in them or awakened within them, however that, that process works. But, and I think that's what we're seeing, right? Like I, I literally think that the relationship that people are establishing with this, this thing, part of that is them being imbued with or the, the latent elements within themselves being amplified by the very representation of those characteristics in the unchanging thing. That's, yeah, that's beautiful. I, I would agree with that. Totally. So that you can't walk into the field of this, was it higher, higherophony? I think so. I don't know how to pronounce it. I think I'll just say totem. It, it <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, to walk into the field of this totem, you have to engage it by its own rules. And these rules and with Bitcoin are embedded within its structure. And that structure is absolute and immutable from what I understand. And so, yeah, to engage with it, one has to activate those aspects of oneself. So that's the fairness, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I would agree that it, it then has this field which affects those who engage with it and actually motivates and incentivizes a more coherent and uh, fair and just way of showing up and conducting, interacting with each other. That, that's interesting. And since we're, I guess, philosophizing here, I'll just, uh, one thing that I was wondering just, is- Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And kind of like just considering things because I've, yeah, I have no, either way, I'm just riffing with you. I have, don't have full convictions on this, but I'm really loving exploring and making sense of it based on like your understanding and your, uh, you know, what I imagine is expertise in the field. So one thing that I wanted to bring to this and let's see what, what happens with it is, so I heartily accept the emanation and the, the, the frequency that, that the totem exudes and the influence it has on all who engage with it. And then the reverse, as we, you know, we agree that there is some of that, what people project onto that totem changes their personal relationship. But I wonder if uh, what the effect is when a, larger, when a larger group agrees on the projection that they put on this thing and what happens within the relationship then. What I see in the Bitcoin uh, sphere from just what I see is a very healthy projection. So I think there's a healthy kind of like relationship with it, you know. All the OGs, the Bitcoin OGs, there's a there's a held ground of like generally understanding what the game is, and and so I think it's it's healthy, and and I wonder, I just wanted to 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 share this with you. Maybe you're aware of it. And, and esoterica and esoteric lore, 
Um, there's something called the egregore. And the egregore is a collection of thought forms of human beings who align based on a certain sort of, sort of agreements on a, on a certain theme, topic, event, whatever it is. And the egregore over time actually forms its own uh, independent uh, thought form. And this thought form now actually exerts influence on the thinkers or, or the adherents. So this has happened with any political movement, any large ideology, you can track that and how it actually has its own set of rules, beliefs and actions and people. We see this now with kind of like the a lot of uh, combative activism that we've been seeing much more in the last five years. Um, a lot of these, these kind of like mimetic tribes that we're seeing. So each one has an egregore, which if you don't play according to its rules, it kind of spits you out. Right, or, or will destroy you depending on how you engage it. If you oppose it fully head on, it will. It has so much power and amplitude that it will kind of crush you. And there's ways to deal with it. Um, and so my, I guess this is just like a philosophical inquiry. I'm not saying there's ne anything negative into it, but I'm applying that to to Bitcoin. I wonder, I wonder if the, I wonder if the healthy and harmonious amplitude would increase. And I guess it would. I'm, I think I'm answering my own question. Is when the the adherents around the central pillar of absoluteness are also imbuing it back with with actually reflecting to it these noble virtuous approaches, and maybe perhaps there's a feedback loop that can occur that 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 gives it more and more power, and that resonates much wider. And so anyone that comes in to join this sphere of activity is either, either aligns to these higher values or by virtue of the values is spit out that they don't want to play according to them. So if you have someone with a you know, lower controlling kind of consciousness within the central banking system or any of its iterations, trying to come into this space with the same mentality of you know, wanting their <laughs> dirty little tentacles to do what they do, then it's very likely that they won't be able to stay within it. So they try to subvert it from without uh yeah i guess sorry man I'm, I'm just kind of like making sense of this i don't think i'm saying anything concrete but i was trying to make sense of that relationship for myself i guess but yeah please, if you have anything to say well first of all i'm more than content to sit here and watch you make sense of things on your own as much as you want to do so don't worry about that <laughs> um but i i would say that you've you've hit the nail on the head that perfectly characterizes what's happening you know, to people that are holding the totem, as it were, to, to, to people in the community. And this is kind of why I referred to earlier, one, you know, that it can seem abrasive to some people and people, and, and it draws criticism for that. But the reason why I said we should be careful not to, to prejudge what sort of behavior or act, action this totem elicits because it's totally novel. And so some people might come in and here, here's the, 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 the thing that I find so deliciously amusing and ironic all the time is because I know who a lot of these people are, right? Had long, deep conversations with them, have met many of them in person. Like I know them on a very deep level. And I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the fact that these people that I'm engaging with are you know, I hate to use this cliche term, but the most awakened, the most sincere, the most honest, the most truthful 
it doesn't mean that they're perfect and that they're going to appeal to everyone's sensibilities, but they're, they're being as genuine as they can be, as honest as they can be, pursuing truth as much as they can. And that is what I appreciate more than anything. Whether I like you or not, or whether I like, you know, more than likely because our values coalesce around those things to such a degree, we probably are going to get along. But like, even if I disagree with some of your opinions, like that is what I value. And as a result of that, you know, to, to use a, a real world example, there was a Bitcoin conference in Miami in, in June and there was 13,000 people there and we'd all been locked up for 18 months and many of us had never met and we all got there. And I've never been in a circumstance where people were operating on such a similar wavelength before that people that I'd never met and, and in many cases only ever interacted with their avatar and false name on Twitter, right? Pseudonymous accounts and that kind of stuff would meet them and immediately give them like one of those tight hug, like tight squeezes that you give to people that, you know, you're very affectionate with and you end up just hanging out in, in you know, perfect harmony, really, you know, or like, you know, really, really jiving well. And so to answer your question, people that come into this space um, with humility and a, and a genuine pursuit of truth, I mean, you, you have to be humble if, you're, if you have a genuine pursuit of truth, right? I would, I would make that claim. Um, but if you have that one or those two attributes, you'll be received with open arms. People will try to help you in whatever way they can, provide resources, explanations. But as you say, if you're the central banker, if you're the academic who thinks they know it all, if you're the Nobel Prize winning economist, whatever, whatever, and you come in and you presume to know and you project your hubris and your arrogance and your presumptions on those people, well, they're going to give you a spanking unlike you've ever seen, right? The, 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 the moniker of cyber hornets was bestowed on, on the group, uh, on the community, you know, about a year ago by an influential American businessman uh, who, who went down the rabbit hole and was quote unquote converted. That's, that's Michael Saylor. I don't, don't know if you're, you're familiar with him, but so the point is, is like it, it seems you on first pass, it might seem as though these are not the elevated, properly value, value oriented, you know, humble, truth seeking individuals that I've been sold. You know, these people look like a bunch of maniacs, but it is, as you say, how you approach it. Who are you showing up as to approach that community? And that will very much determine how you're approached. Uh, in as a result of that and I think I love it as a as a type of filter because it does separate the wheat from a ch the chaff in a way because like I said earlier I mean I think this would probably apply to both of us like I think we we probably have both pursued truth to with such dedication that you know the uh, the discomfort of the Peruvian Amazon or the nasty words from someone on Twitter or the the anxiety and the stress and the pressure and the discomfort of engaging the world in whatever way is insufficient to push us off that course because we believe in the value, the ultimate value of truth. And so if you can't encounter, if, if you're turned away at the gates by a few pseudonymous people with lasers in their eyes, you know, calling you mean names, then maybe you're not ready to, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you weren't really on that journey in the first place and you, you have mm -hmm. other work to do first, you know? Yeah, I, I always see that stuff as like mini agent smiths that are just part of the system to try to deter you. 
and within even like with without using a technological metaphor just within the conscious and unconscious interplay of like the field of consciousness whenever you really mean it and whenever you're crystallizing higher levels of consciousness the unconscious will always try to like grasp really strongly on that so those kind of snide snipes that you're talking about are like part of the process and they're great little tests for us right like how much do i mean this how much do i value truth and uh then we can sort of like dust them off and every time we do we fill those gaps with like sovereignty and agency right and they're just showing us where where we are kind of like maybe have some holes in our game exactly um, yeah. and you know i i look at i've witnessed some of the the banter that goes on and you know occasionally you might look at an interaction and you might be like that was just unnecessarily aggressive right unnecessarily so but my approach is this what's the negative aspect of the unnecessary aggression i'll use it in relation to myself right of course i'm on the internet i'm online people call me a fucking idiot all the time or, or whatever else right that literally does not affect me whatsoever i mean it just it doesn't penetrate me at all so the detriment of that action is nil right but the value of that individual even though let, let, let's say there's some sort of perverse thing they're, they're misinterpreting me there's there's some anger and frustration in 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 them that's manifesting in that critique of, of me in that moment right let's let's just accept that but they're also expressing the truth of that however uh to whatever degree you know we we might say those things shouldn't exist within within them the fact is that they're still expressing they're allowing themselves to express the truth of that, let's say, frustration. And in a world where we are, we, we, the cages that most of us are in are by our own making, you know, the, the social pressure and the expectations and the conditioning and all that. I just simply, in relative terms, I value the act of expressing yourself genuinely, even if inappropriately, versus the like the completely nil positive or negative of how it affects me. So, so occasionally when I see people being a little bit like off base, I still lean toward being like, good for you, you know, because at least there was like the courage or the impetus to be genuine in that moment with that emotion, even if it wasn't necessarily a good one. Do you know what I'm saying? No, I agree. It's not a veiled reaction. It's a real reaction, I suppose. So, right. Yeah. 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 Totally. Um, and, you know, the, the last thing on this uh, on this particular point uh, is I think belief systems and fundamental coordinating mechanisms of trading our time, energy and work. So money, I would say, is the foundation of that and the economic systems that uh, are built on top of that. So those those two core things and obviously belief and money are deeply wound up with one another. You know, I think part of this enterprise that we're all on is actually determining what money is. And I think as we move forward th through this, we will develop a deeper appreciation for what money is far beyond the simple functions that we currently uh, describe it as. But nevertheless, I think what's happening here is the foundations of the future global civilization. And I know that that may sound arrogant in itself, but an unchanging totem of value communication, 
I think is kind of the, the, you know, the thing that is the best at doing that becomes the foundation for civilization. And because it's so, so advantageous to have a tool like that, whether it be, you know, again, in the past, like in the religious realm or in the monetary realm or what have you, means that the, the, the group of people, the network that adopt that become competitively advantaged versus the others. And that's how the culture and the civilization grows and grows and grows and grows until it becomes dominant. And I, my, my opinion, that's what's happening with around Bitcoin. And it's still so, so, so early, of course. But what I, what I value so much is that, you know, whether the, the item, the idol is imbuing us and, or, and to whatever degree we're imbuing it, the outcome is that these ideas and these values and these principles are all being recontextualized, right? They're, they're, they're being brought out of ourselves into the, into the public forum of both action and communication, and they're being refined and, and the proper value of each of them is being determined so that they can be reintegrated. And that, I mean, that is, you would expect that for the emergence of a new civilizational underpinning, I think, but also yeah. it's, it's so exciting, man. I mean, just think about it. Like, I know the world is so fucked up and, you know, we've, we've, we've discussed a lot of that already, but I genuinely believe we're, we are determining what the foundations of a new one should and can be. And we're all actively, you know, many of us are actively participating in that process. And what could be more hopeful than that, really? You know, and that's yeah. why I think so many of us are imbued with enthusiasm and energy around this. Yeah, I agree. And that's like the, I mean, that's like the prime tool, I think, right now, the prime resources is being energized with positive generative energy that then we can communicate to everyone else and keep, keep that high, high energy that's creative and moving forward. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And, and, you know, the fact that things are quote unquote fucked up is actually a great sign because if, if we're to transform or change or recreate anything, the old has to collapse. And, you know, we have to keep repeating this to remind ourselves that that is like part of this whole potential renaissance. And like to say it in, other, in different words, I'm just going to reiterate what you're saying is <clears throat> our reality and our culture, our experience in this world is based upon a series of collective agreements. And so these collective agreements, by and large, were not consciously chosen by us. They're artifacts of a other systems of thought and of history. <clears throat> Some of them are functional, there's functional traditions, and many are unfunctional and disempowering and degenerative. So I think a lot of us right now are peeking our heads out of the waters of the unconscious and being like, hey, let's, let's renegotiate these collective agreements. And by renegotiating this, these relationships, these agreements we have about institutions, about economies, about interpersonal relationships, about our relationship to power, personal power, nature, life, the good life, whatever it is, we are actually recreating the structure of reality because we're putting the thought forms in first and then we're following those up with concrete action and that manifests a change in the world. So yeah, this re renegotiation uh, around stable things that we agree upon is, is like absolutely essential. And as we do that, things that don't work, will collapse, and there's going to be some discomfort as we take responsibility and like, how do we now offset, like, how do we accommodate or how do we do the things that were done for us before, whether that's like sense-making by corrupt media 
agencies that were making sense of the world for us. Now we have to do it uh, accurately, sometimes not. And everything else we're going to have to start doing for ourselves, uh, not, as, not only as individuals, but maybe that's quite a burden, but as collectives who are harmonizing to each other. And we're going to do that in a higher order than, than has ever been done. We're going to do it better. We're going to do it in a way that's much more satisfying, much more fulfilling. And I imagine that the collective resonance of all these actions is going to create a fever pitch of like sublime bliss at some point, you know, that comes out of hardship. It comes out of resilience and triumphs and victories. And um, these are the thoughts um, and the eventualities that really empower me day to day. Um, so yeah, renegotiating what's real. <laughs> or no, not renegotiating what's real, calibrating to what's real and renegotiating our agreements to it, I guess. <laughs> calibrating to what's real and renegotiating our agreements to it. Yeah. I, li I like that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's very, very well said. Um, how, what's your time situation like? You I, fail? I, yeah, I got to go. I have quite a few tasks ahead of me. Yeah, of course, yeah. and I really appreciate the time. I gotta, I want to do this again because there's there's a lot more to discuss. Um, but for now, I think that spiel you just gave is a perfect place to end it. And I guess my only last question is, um, how, you know, what are you working on? Is there going to be another manifestation uh, like in shadow uh, in the foreseeable? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's been some sort of like responsibility and some some kind of guilt in me with since I released in shadow. A lot of people, you know, want a sequel and want a into light or something. More, more, more. To that. Yeah, and I I feel much more up to the task to do that now than I have been before, just because I've been maturing in my own sense of self. And uh, I think we need a rallying cry of uh, victory and vision right now, and I think that's a very necessary piece of art to come out. Mm -hmm. uh, something like that may come out in the new year maybe we'll see uh, see if the resources are aligned because in, up until now as i said at the beginning of the conversation i've been negotiating my own path of like self-sustenance and like creative endeavors uh so before what i just said is, is made i have to finish something else that i'm working on it's a uh, it's um, it's work for hire, but I kind of made it my own, and I'm very grateful for for the production company that's supporting me on this, and I'm supporting them by making it. It's a short sci-fi, kind of dystopian short film about uh, social credit score and a system similar to the Great Reset, set in Russia, in the near future, and a virtual reality realm that that siphons the consciousness of uh, of, of basically kids from their VR sets, um, you know, there's like hacking and other things going on. So it has to do with sovereignty, wealth, and how we turn into um, non-player characters, both spiritually and figuratively and literally in video games from uh, player one, which is the sovereign being. So it's kind of like a bleak tale of how we give away our, our free will in exchange for approval, social credits, and stuff like that within a system of... Uh, of horror really this great reset kind of system well that sounds like a very powerful endeavor in itself so you know anxiously anticipate that but uh, man i thank you so much for um the time i'm extremely grateful for it as well as for your work and in shadow and, and whatever is to come i um yeah i i 
I love having these conversa this conversation with you. Um, I love the perspective that you have and that you're able to articulate and share. So, you know, I look forward to doing it again sometime. Yeah, man, me too. Again, and just to you know, mirror that back to you, I had a pleasure speaking to you, unfolding all these concepts. And I, I got a lot of value from what you said. I actually do want to re-listen to, to this and uh, take some notes. So yeah, yeah, I do hope we speak again. Awesome, man. Well, I'm sure we'll be in touch. And uh, when the time is right, we'll do it again. So until then, take care. All right, brother. Take care. See Bye. you, brother. Bye.